0: Now, welcome to all the people around the world switching on here regarding the webcast for our Capital Market Day 2017 for our company, Eiffel Schmidt. Today, we have a very interesting theme, growth through productivity. When we say it like that, of course, it immediately engages. And it does, but you will see that it's a result. It's a part of a flow, of a journey what we do with the company. We are, of course, coming into a cyclical recovery. That's in itself a positive news, but we should not forget that we are still in mining in the longest-lasting recession, and it's still a bumpy road. In cement, actually, the boom days were over from our customer point of view in 2008 when the financial crisis started. And for us, it took a little bit longer. We had all the long-lasting contracts. But now we see more that cement comes out of that very long downturn in that cycle. Productivity is the main theme for both industries. Actually, for cement, longer already than for mining, which is a big advantage for us to learn internally. We gave as a mark, as a statement, of course, years ago, we manage the cycle in the downturn and prepare for the upturn. And we can say that we manage the cycle, and we will go on to do that. We have our house mostly in order, and I will invite you today to go through the front door of our company, Ethel Schmidt, and we will show you some rooms of growth opportunities. I promise you we will not show you all the rooms under in the basement and so on, but we will show you the growth opportunities what we have, on top of that what the market will deliver. And that will create for us sustainable, profitable growth which is so important for the development. We are the productivity provider number one in the industries where we act and in the technologies where we act in. And that is very important because the new cycle coming from a capacity cycle in cement as well as in mining into a productivity cycle we already saw in the 80s and in the 90s. So it's a kind of a repetition from a demand point of view, but it's very important to know it requests a different competence level too. What are the growth initiatives? What are the growth levers in that kind of a phase? We have four out. We choose four. Digitalization we took innovation life cycle management and key products and you will learn about that you will learn about that digitalization is predominantly an en- enabler and not a single business on its own and we will go into details for that innovation is so important when you change the matter of the cycle from capacity into into innovation and life cycle management we can prove it with a customer out of Indonesia since 1902 what life cycle management means and what we can do more. And then our key products. You will see two of our top product companies presenting what they do and what they can do more. That's the agenda. And you see that we will start or go after my presentation with Lars's presentation about internal productivity because you have to be good in own productivity, in own efficiency, before you go out and tell others how to do it better. Then we will go into a short break. After that, Peer will take over with the digitalization before Manfred going into innovation growth, growth through innovation. Then we have a common lunch break here to bring it back, the old mood, into the canteen then we go into life cycle management grow through life cycle management with uh, brian before we go for our two colleagues one out of pumps and cyclones the former brand Crabs, as well as packing system ventomatic two of our product company companies and then i make the closing remarks roughly at four o'clock and before of course we have an Total Q&A session, and that is important that we please wait with the, the questions to that Q&A session. After the closing at 4 o'clock, you have a chance to mingle with us here in that area up to 5 o'clock and asking very direct questions. So, Ethel Schmidt, who are we? Founded in 1882 here in Denmark, cl- true global player, a true global player. First office in the United States 1819, 1892. First office in China 1912 with own Chinese engineers. And I can go all the countries through. We are f- throughout the world since more than 110, 120 years already. We are around 12,000 people. We operate in more than 100 countries. And of course, we are in cement and we are in mining. And if I take cement, we tested it with a company, with an outside company. We are the same known in cement with our brand as Coca-Cola is known in soft drinks worldwide. And that is a huge value what we have, and that value is built on the performance of people, not of buildings and machines. It's people who do that. We are market-leading supplier in both industries in the areas where we decided to play in and our vision is that we drive success through sustainable productivity enhancement. So from that we look into something else which is part of our DNA which is around, you heard it from the nice lady talking about safety. Safety is so important and it's not a business, it's a kind of a culture. It's a culture to take responsibility for yourself. It's a culture to take the responsibility for your neighbor, for your supplier, for your customer, for all the people you act and work with. And this is what you see, the measurement, the measurement of lost time frequency injury rates, which means how many hours per million working hours we lose based on accident. And in 2012, we were close to five which is, from an industry comparison, not a good figure. Today, we run on a level of 1.2 hours per million working hours lost on an accident, and that is, in the industry, good, but we are not satisfied with that. We really run for zero harm, and we have examples where we more or less are there. We have a site in Latin America where we make the maintenance on the mine site since more than 17 years, not one second lost on an accident. That is unbelievable, perfect performance and shows that safety is part of our culture. If we then look into our business, we have a robust business model and business foundation. We act in two industries with very attractive growth and business opportunities. Yes, both are cyclical. It's a roller coaster. We know that. But as more people we get on Earth, as more people we have who would like to have a better life tomorrow, as more we sell. Because that is what we offer. We build the future. We offer equipment for producing cement which can create roads and buildings. We offer equipment to produce copper to have wires to transport electrical power. The other thing why it's attractive, it gets more complex. In mining, the ore bodies are not that easy to mine as it was maybe a hundred years ago. More regulations, more social engagement in that what mining is doing, dropping ore grades in some of the commodities, all that where we can add more of our competence to the customers. In cement, similar emissions, the the quality of cement, which is so important, and you hear it and you see it each day. If something happens, if a big earthquake and so on, and the buildings which are standing and not collapsing because they are built with proper cement, that is a positive news. We work on that to deliver a good quality cement. That's very important for us. And it requests premium competence. It's not about cheap delivery. It's not about delivering a kilogram of steel the cheapest way. It's about delivering value, competence. And that, again, is through values and people, which is the base of all doing. The other part is, of course, we work in mining and cement together because we have a huge leverage between the both setups. Cement is a dry, predominantly a dry process, and minerals is predominantly a wet process. But a lot of the equipment, a lot of the competence is actually the same. We have in standard engineering an overlap of up to 90% what we can leverage, not only with our colleagues in Chennai. We can leverage, we can learn from each other because cement is ahead of the mining cycle. And not to forget, we have to be separated in the front line because the customers are different. The customer behavior is different. Some technical requirements are different. So it's not all out of one pot. We have, of course, a clear cement approach to our clients and a clear mining approach. But where we can cooperate on group functions, purchasing, no matter what it is, that works very well together for a very long time. And then, last but not least, our unique business model. How to make, how to be the productivity provider number one is not about to say it. It's about that you can offer something what the client needs. And we hope it's clear to understand that you have to understand the whole process. You have to get how to make copper from here to there how to produce cement, the whole process is important. And you only learn that and you are only on your toes, you are only developing and investing in a proper way if you do that business, if you take big projects up to EPC or DBO as we offer it in cement, which means design, build and operate. The other part is you have to have the core equipment in-house because if you have to buy it anywhere else, the sub-supplier will not tell you all the secrets of that equipment because that is what he lives on. So we have that. And last but not least, the service. And we are not talking here about to deliver bits and pieces. It's about the competence, how to operate, how to maintain, how to learn out of mistakes, how to learn out what will happen tomorrow before it happens. And that combined, that gives us the advantage to say we have all the competence for being and we are the productivity provider number one if we then look into that, what we offer from a whole offering, you see on the upper part of the slide, and you know that because we have it in quite a lot of um, uh, announcements in, where we are in cement, we are the most complete provider of cement technology products and services who you can find. And that gives to digitalization, which is the enabler of doing business for the future, of course, uh, fantastic position because we can calculate what happens at the crusher, which kind of impact it has on the packing machine. We can do that. It's our process. It's our equipment. And in mining, we are in parts of that. For us, it's very important to be in the mine side with having the laboratory equipment and a fantastic laboratory what we have in Salt Lake City, for example, to analyze how is the ore body, how is the mine, how is the ore grade developing, and which impact it has on the gyratory, down to dry stack tailings, no filtration, no matter what it is. And that gives, of course, with digitalization a completely different angle. If we then look into what we mean with that productivity-driven cycle, a capacity-driven cycle, what you see on the slide on the left side, follows that the main business, the the biggest part of the money invested is on projects to build bigger plants. If it's possible, bigger than it's actually demanded in the first round, always bigger and fast to have enough capacity available. Of course, the products are important too because they are part of the plant. But the service relatively, the spend on the service is not that high because you run for more capex spent to build more plants and bigger. Before you really think about to put more into optimization and opex, that is a capacity cycle. It's mostly greenfield. It's um, an area where you have to have a fantastic good competence in supply chain. How do I get the goods? You know that we are 70, 80% outsourced. How do I get the goods and bring bring it? in a changed form with our competence to the client. That competence you need a lot around the world. Now we move into a productivity cycle where that what was built in the last 10, 20 years has to get optimized. Yes, products are back and they will come more and more because replacement substitution and yeah, some greenfield too, the same as with projects. But the service business, the OPEX part, has a significant higher percentage of the total spend throughout the cycle. Premium equipment, premium competence is important. It's not about to supply the fastest, the cheapest mill. It's about to supply the best grinding performance. And when you hear that, then you know it's about people competence. So to transform a company from supplying a lot, very fast, reliable, all over the world in supplying competence. That movement, that is what we used the downturn for. And we think we did it in our way quite okay. So from that point of view, this productivity, dear effel Schmidt, come over and reduce my cash cost because I'm too much on the right side of the cash cost curve. I would like to be left that my board is not permanently on me and blaming me for not performing well. That is the question what we get. That's the reason why we sell service and equipment and projects and not because we are the cheapest. If we then look into that, what we did, yeah, we managed the cycle. That means we looked already We looked already in the darkest time, when we were on the way to the bottom, on the way to the trough, where a lot of comments were, what is ongoing in that industry? What are they doing? Why is it going down so much? But that's a cyclical industry where we already, that was the time where we started to look, how do we look like when we are back on the peak? What do we need to have to be back on the peak and to outperform the market? What is it, what drives us in the future? not forgetting about the next quarter, not forgetting about the next year, but looking always ahead. That is very important for a company in our industry. And what did we do? We checked the strategy which was implemented in 2012, and we kept it. We implemented an efficiency program. We organized our company based on the cyclical part that we knew where to invest first, We have two divisions, cement and minerals, on the projects. We have one product company division and one customer service division. And it's very simple to see with the cycle which is divided in these three pieces, which business booms and where I have to put the money next into. So alone the figures what we get out of our business gives us an information, where are we in the cycle? And that is embedded in the culture. And that helps, of course, why we have a good track record when we announce something, that it just happens because the people are good, they understand, they live with that where we are in. And yes, we sold things off. We announced bulk material handling that's on the way, Semprit we sold and some smaller stuff too. Why? Because you can't be focused on everything. We focus on that where we are good at it, our core. And we go in some adjacent business, yes, where it makes sense and you will hear about that today. So what is then the growth out of it? Yeah, we are still in mining, yeah, maybe at the end of the trough and in salmon cautiously coming out, but what is the next phase? Slight growth, and then it gets speed, and we have to be prepared for that. So what can we do with it? To summarize, strategy, okay, structure, okay, balance sheet, yeah, strengthened in the darkest hours. We have the lowest debt level since quite a while, since quite a while, then cost base adjusted and the competence development, the amount of competence, of training of new recruits too, but mainly of training and competence development with our own people, taking them from being in supply more into delivering competence and value to the customer. That is what we use the time for, which is, of course, an investment into the future, where which will pay off a lot. And... Last but not least, early to position ourselves as a productivity provider number one. Already years ago we talked about it, that it will come up. Then we look into that, how we see the world. We don't change our view on the cyclical growth rates in cement and mining. In cement it's 3 to 4% over the cycle per annum. And in mining, it's four to five percent over the cycle per annum. That is the market growth. Yes, there is a phase where it grows faster in the cycle, and of course, as we heart feel, there is a phase where it goes down. But when you combine both, these are the growth rates. And then we reestablish Or mention again that we have our long-term targets, our 10 to 13% EBITDA, our 20% return on capital employed, our equity ratio of 30% and financial gearing as well as the payout ratio, and the above market average growth. And that is what we talk today. That's the doors we open in our house of Eiffel Schmidt to you. And it will get, in a lot of areas, quite technical. We know that but we reflected on all the investor meetings what we had in the last few quarters. There was a lot of technical question on us and we would like to give something of that back. Of course, with figures too, that's clear. But looking deeper into it, what it really means that you can have an impression that this is not only a say, that there is really competence and innovation in it where we get global awards in competition to companies like Lockheed and Rolls-Royce and not only in mining, And that is not the old auntie Eiffel Schmidt. That's an innovation engine, what we have in cement and in mining. So, what are the growth levers? At first, what is the business where we are today? In cement, we are cautiously optimistic. Why are we saying so? We have some countries having a good run in cement, but the pricing pressure is awful. It is strong. It's tough. Lars is not stopping to mention that, and there's a reason for it, because that's the truth. And why is it that? Because not enough countries are back. But the GDP growth in the north of 3% clearly brings more countries back, countries where they have a young generation growing and hungry for new jobs, for better infrastructure. That drives our cement part. And we see that coming, and it's not only the Philippines and Vietnam and Colombia. There are more countries to come, but it takes time, and that is the time where we are in. We get a good share, a good stake out of that. Then we have mining, the longest trough ever, longer than the Great Depression. Longer than the Great Depression. I always make the joke, when I go for retirement, that's what I can tell my grandchildren. I was part of the longest mining recession ever but what does it mean for us it is still a bumpy road capex spend is very very low very very low that's the situation it's a bumpy road ahead of us but that should not block us to look the next step the growth phase so what are the growth things what we have digitalization everyone talks about it actually more in mining than in cement because cement We have digitalization out of Schmidt since the beginnings of the 60s, last century, where we started with automation. And now in mining, based on capacity cycle to productivity cycle, it gets more interesting. But digitalization is an enabler and not a lot, very, very tiny own business on itself. You have it, you sell as a premium supplier. You don't have it, you are not a premium supplier any longer. So it in your DNA, make the environment digitalized. That's the thing. Don't make it only as an own business because you put it then in one corner, you have to sell and that's it. That is not digitalization. And you have it on your own. If I would ask who, has, who have all here, iPhone or Samsung or I don't know what else, from Apple, iPad, more or less everyone has it. I guess everyone has it. So And that is digitalization of life. That's the environment where we are in. My daughter in school is more or less not writing by hand any longer, all on, on the keyboard. So the other thing, innovation, grow through innovation, where Manfred will go in. What does it mean? We have to offer different technologies to face the challenges what we have in the industry, in cement as well as in mining. When we have dropping ore grades, when I started to study, a 4 or 5% copper deposit was nothing special. Today, it's already good if you're 0.8, 0.9. We have to come with new technologies. It can't be that we use the same equipment than two, 300 years ago. And that is the innovation part. Then, of course, life cycle. And life cycle is not only that we are able to manage the inventory of customers. It's about to be with the customer as a partner. You don't see a difference between an average Schmidt employee and a customer employee working together to have the best return out of that mine site or salmon plant. And last but not least, our internal part to go abroad, to have the good products, the good offerings what we have, in all countries we operate. We are still not there, more to do, and that's important. And how are we creating the growth? It's, of course, predominantly organic. But of course, we look selective in M&A, too. So out of that, thanks a lot. And I would like to introduce my dear CFO, Lars Westergaard. And he will take you through the internal productivity. Hey, Lars. Thank you.
1: Good morning, everyone. So, uh, I'm going to talk to you about internal productivity. Uh, the theme of this Capital Markets Day is growth, growth through productivity, and as Thomas mentioned, uh, you have to be internally productive to, uh, to deliver productivity to customers. Um, the picture you have uh, behind me here is uh, the FL Smith house in, uh, in Chennai. Uh, that's a very important part of our internal productivity. Uh, in that building, we have 2,500 colleagues. A 1,000 of them are servicing the Indian market, and 1,500 are servicing all business units globally. We have 600 engineers, 200 finance people, 200 procurement people, uh, and 200 IT people servicing the entire world out of this office. Um, So this is just one of the examples of how we drive uh, productivity in our company to have big facilities that can service uh, everybody. Um, What I'm going to cover today is, uh, is internal productivity, uh, and then uh, we're going to talk about the usual CFO agenda stuff with uh, with how we allocate uh, capital and how we measure success and use uh, financial KPIs. So once I'm finished with my presentation, um, I hope you will have a very good uh, understanding of how we take out synergies across the, uh, the various divisions, how we manage our cost base to ensure that when we grow, we grow profitably. If we look at what... Uh, how we drive uh, internal productivity, uh, I'm going to cover the operating model we have. Uh, we have four divisions, but the divisions are actually sharing quite a lot of competences uh, or functions uh, in the back end. Uh, and I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, insight how to we do that. The governance structures. When we are running things across uh, the divisions, we're not managing uh, the cost basis through the divisions. We're managing them on a the country and group level. Uh, and there we can uh, we can manage these uh, much tighter when we start to grow again than if we had them as part of the divisions where it's less uh, transparent what, uh, what happens in these areas. Um, we will talk about uh, pro- uh, synergies uh, uh, in a number of areas. And then, not least, procurement, uh, where we have started a new procurement transformation. If we just look at what have the historic priorities been... Um, when you start, go back now a number of years, we have pretty much been a full uh, provider of all service into the cement industries for many, many years. And in the early 2000s, we started to build the flow sheet in, uh, in mining. That was a lot of acquisitions where we got a lot of sites. Uh, we invested heavily into service centers. Um, so we now have a very f- full offering in minerals too. Uh, so that was the focus uh, until we had, uh, the downturn, and there we started to really focus on integrating all these companies, uh, creating an operating model where we could uh, grow more, uh, more properly when we come back. Uh, so, so the structure we have now is easier to manage. It is more built for uh, capturing uh, a lot, a very high operating leverage when we start to grow again. Um, and in the future, the focus will be on, uh, on getting procurement benefits out. Uh, to drive synergies across the divisions and really manage our cost base very tightly. If we just look at our footprint uh, across the world, um, this is uh, the picture we have. You saw the Ethel Smith House in Chennai where we have a shared service center. Um, so basically, if mining is down and cement is up, we can move engineers from one part of the building to the other. Uh, and of course, India has a very huge uh, workforce, so to uh, hire people is very uh, is very attractive in India. And of course, the cost level is uh, is attractive too. The other thing we have, which is quite important, is that we have invested very substantial money in super centers uh, where you have mining clusters. That means that uh, if the market starts to grow, and we already have the service network out where it's uh, where it's close to customers. Uh, we have technology centers consolidated. We bought a lot of com- com- uh, companies. Uh, a lot of the mining competences are consolidated in uh, our technology center in Salt Lake City now. Um, so the footprint is not as expensive as it was some years ago. Uh, and then you can see we have uh, sales offices uh, across the world. Uh, so the key here is when we start to grow again, we need we don't need to invest a lot of money. The majority of our uh, manufacturing is outsourced, um, and we have the assembly centers in place in india and uh, and in uh, in China and uh, Francesco will talk a little bit about how the product company can leverage on uh, on our shared uh, um, assembly centers uh, so a lot of the things we need when we start to grow again is already uh, in place, so we don't need to invest a lot of money uh, when we go back into uh, to the growth phase um, so does this mean that we have invested uh, everything we need to do? No, we would like to invest more into sales offices. But these are not big expensive investments. These are more to cover white spots where we have uh, a too little market share. And then of course we drive synergies across the divisions. Uh, we have four divisions where a lot of the competences are specific to that division. We have product specialists. Uh, You'll see some of them today. We have process experts who cover the whole flow sheet uh, in the specific industries. We have dedicated salespeople who really know the the products inside out. But then we also have a huge amount of shared uh, competences. We have a lot of scale benefits. uh, When you look into finance, HR, IT, engineering, Uh, we have scale because we are in all these industries. We have common know-how. We know how to execute projects. Uh, we have shared uh, customer service across uh, cement and minerals and a number of, uh, of areas where we collaborate. And then, uh, as I showed you in the beginning, we have our shared service center in India. Um, and also, when you look at a country level, we have consolidated uh, a lot of the, these functions um, into one organization that uh, supports all four divisions. And how are we managing the costs? So the way we have, uh, uh we have uh, organized our business is that the, res- the divisions are responsible for everything down to what we call business result. That means uh, gross margin is the responsibility of uh, the divisions. Uh, and the direct costs that are, where it's 100% under the control of the divisions. That means sales people, proposal people, and so on. Uh, and what we have shown here is a picture from our annual account where we actually disclose what is the responsibility of the divisions. And what is shared cost that covers all, uh, all the divisions? Um, so if you take the first line, you can see that uh, where we have uh, put the, the, right, uh, the, the, right bo- the red box, you can see that in customer service, we have a business result of 1.3 uh, billion, um, and uh, an EBITDA of, uh, of 800 billion uh, last year. Uh, the difference is the allocation they get of the shared cost. And the shared cost, we manage differently. So we have uh, an R&D uh, function where we, uh, we allocate money based on where the best investments are. Uh, we have group and country SGNA, and uh, a which is almost half of our SGNA and a cost that is managed outside the divisions, but of course uh, very much um, uh, with influence from the divisions. Um, so basically, we take out synergies and we manage it in the way we, uh, we can take out synergies. So so when we start to grow, one key driver of our increased profitability will be the operating leverage we get. Because, of course, when we start to grow again, we will not need to add in the fixed cost that we have taken out. Of course, when we start to grow, we will need more sales and proposal people. But we don't need more finance people and IT systems and HR and so on. So there's a lot of places where when we start to grow, we will really get a huge uh, operating leverage benefit. Procurement. Procurement was, uh, uh, during last year, uh, taken out of the division and created as, a, as a, a global function that supports all the divisions, still sitting physically with the divisions. Um, when you look at our cost base, this is a very substantial part of our cost rate. It's 70 to 80% of our of our production cost that sits in procurement. Um, so what are the uh, the benefits we'll get from a global procurement organization? First of all, I think it's important to note that we always focused on procurement. It has always been a key part of our DNA uh, to really drive procurement hard. But by doing it globally as uh, as one function, we get a number of new new benefits that we can drive harder. Category management is one thing. If you look at the suppliers we have across the businesses, they are very much the same. We have electrical engines, we have fabrication, we have sea freight, we have lots of different things where we can hire experts now that can service all the business units where that was much more difficult when procurement was embedded in all business units. Uh, Value engineering is another big lever that we have been working on for many years, but now we can have dedicated people who are experts in value engineering. Uh, Value engineering is, of course, the responsibility for product line management, but procurement can play a very big part with specialists in, uh, in the various areas. So, value engineering will take time, but the opportunity is very significant. And efficiency. Uh, when you have a global organization, it is of course uh, possible to move more of the transactional ta- uh, tasks to low cost countries. And therefore, you can more leverage, uh, or get scale benefits by, by sharing resources across the business units. So, there's a very significant part of opportunity in the procurement area in these three areas. Um, we have not given a, a target for what is the total opportunity that we see in this area. Uh, some of it will be given to customers, and some of it will be, be kept by us. So uh, uh, so this is an area where we will both deliver more productivity to customers, but we'll also uh, put some of it on the bottom line of F.L. Schmidt. And now going into uh, the CFO agenda, uh, we will talk a little bit about the main KPIs we have. If we start by, uh, by looking at the, the balance sheet... Um, You can see uh, on the left-hand chart that in periods we have had a negative debt, i.e. being cash rich. Um, So we have, uh, during our history, been uh, cash rich in certain periods of time. We very often get the question, so now that your net debt is below two, uh, does that mean that you will start to pay out uh, special dividends? Uh, The answer to that is maybe. Um, We don't mind having cash uh, sitting on our balance sheet if we see that there are opportunities to invest more in the future. Uh, and we can show that, uh, that historically we have done that. Uh, what's very uh, good to see about the net debt is that during this dark uh, financial crisis, we have been able to take the debt level down, uh, and our net debt to EBITDA is now uh, uh, below 2. Um, so this is an area that we are very comfortable with, and we are quite pleased that we have been able to, uh, to take down the debt in a very difficult uh, market environment. And equity ratio, uh, same story, uh, uh, more than 35% and our target is, uh, is 30%.
2: Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, so how we allocate capital?
1: Uh, this is not a new slide. Um, what I really would like to say here is that for us to be well capitalized is an absolute cornerstone. Um, this is a cyclical industry. We need to have a strong balance sheet at any point in the cycle. That's the top priority we have. We want to pay our dividends and then on investing in organic growth. The debt level we have, our balance sheet is in order. So when you today here, some of the organic growth opportunities uh, that my colleagues will be presenting, uh, we have the money to do that, uh, and this is uh, one of our top priorities. So, uh, so that is uh, a big priority for us. When we invest in organic growth in FL Schmidt, uh, that could be uh, investing in more salespeople, it could be investing in R&D. Uh, those are the typical things you will see. I would be surprised if this would be investing in a lot of fixed assets or manufacturing facilities. So this is very much about improving our products, uh, improving our technologies and getting more people on board. If we then learn to uh, uh, go to uh, return on capital employed, um, we just put in uh, uh, the two numbers for the two industries we operate in. One for the cement industry where we've been for a very long uh, period of time. The numbers that you have behind me is for the full business, so not for the cement division. It's the cement division, it's the cement part of customer service, it's the product companies that are in cement. Um, There the average, uh, or the EBITDA, is uh, 5.7 for these businesses. Uh, The return on capital employed is significantly above the 20% we have. Uh, If we then turn to all our mining activities, uh, the EBITDA is is, uh, 10.2%. But the return on capital employed is uh, below 20%. Uh, The minerals activities we have, a lot of them have been acquired, which of course led to uh, a substantial amount of goodwill that is really taking the return on capital employed down. We have a target to go above 20% in return on capital employed. We are currently at 9.4%, but we are very confident that when the market starts to come back that we will be able to grow to above 20%. Um, The drivers we will have is, as I explained to you before, operating leverage that will be a huge benefit of leveraging our fixed cost across the uh, activities we have Um, and then of course what you will see from uh, from my colleagues is the organic growth opportunities where we believe we will be able to grow uh, faster than the market Um, so these are important uh, messages that this is a target that we we can reach Uh, of course it uh, requires that the markets are starting to grow a little bit again Um, I talked a little bit about the, the fixed cost base. Uh, we worked very hard on this through the efficiency programs. Uh, we believe we have a very strong handle on the cost basis so that when the market starts to return, um, that the fixed cost will not come back and the percent, uh, fixed cost as percent of revenue will be coming down. Uh, we just put in a small example of what happens if we get one billion more of revenue. Uh, the average uh, gross margin in the group is around 25%. Uh, if we keep our SG&A cost uh, intact, that, of course, increases our EBITDA with, uh, uh, with uh, $250 million. Uh, And the reason why I show this is we believe that we have a lot of spare capacity in our fixed cost base. So when we start to grow, uh, we do not need to add a lot of uh, SG&A cost. Does that mean that we will have no growth in SG&A cost? No, because if we can get uh, salespeople in who can generate more uh, turnover, then, of course, we will do that. But a lot of the uh, the and a uh, cost, there is uh, surplus capacity, so we can actually grow without adding more cost. <coughs> cash conversion uh, is a key message for us, um, uh, and just to give you sort like the housekeeping things, um, the big uh, big things that really moves in our cash flow statement is working capital. Uh, we have a target to go below 10%. When the markets come back. Uh, We will get more revenue in the true capital business where you normally have uh, prepayments and so on. Uh, We have things sitting on our books right now where when the markets come back, they will be even easier to shift. Um, So we believe we can have some tailwind from working capital uh, in the future. Our tax rate is trending down. Uh, We have optimized our our tax structure globally. um, And uh, a lot of countries are putting down the tax rates. So this will be trending down in, in the coming years. Uh, And when you look into investments, uh, as I showed you, we are pretty well invested. Uh, We have the service centers. uh, We have the technology centers. um, So we don't need to invest a lot of money. So we expect to keep CAPEX well below uh, depreciation and amortization as we move forward. So so to sum up... um, we're trying to drive a lot of synergies out of, uh, of the four divisions. Uh, during the downturn, we have uh, optimized our footprint um, and we don't need to add the cost back that we had in the past when we start to grow again. Uh, we have a clear cost uh, governance. Um, we have our procurement initiative where we believe we have substantial uh, upside uh, from that. Uh, so the internal productivity will be a key driver in uh, in taking uh, in taking our... Our return of capital employed is uh, closer to 20%. Um, if you look at the, the balance sheet, uh, we have a lot of flexibility to invest money, uh, and we will be managing costs very tightly to gain the operating leverage that we have. Uh, we are well invested, which means that we have a high cash conversion. Um, and on the, on the two charts we have, uh, we have shown some of the measures that are very important to us. It's free cash flow per share, uh, where as we start to grow again, uh, when we manage our costs properly, uh, we don't need to invest a lot of money, so we believe we can grow this number um, in the coming years. Uh, dividend is, uh, is an important area where we would like to increase this uh, in the coming years. Um, so these are the, the messages from me. Our cost is in control. There are still opportunities out there, um, and we have the money to grow the business. So, um, so the 20% return on capital employed, we believe we can deliver in the coming years. Um, so that was the end of my speech. Uh, we'll now have a 10-minute break, uh, and then Pierre will talk, tell you a lot about what we do in uh, the digitalization
2: area. So, 10-minute um, break.
0: The next presentation is Grow Through Digitalization, and it's Pierre Meinert-Christensen, our division president, and EVP, and member of the GEM, and top management, and with us since the year 1992, which means he's still a young one in the company. Per, it's your stage.
3: Thank you very much for that very nice introduction, Thomas. And hello, everybody. I'm very pleased that I have the chance today to talk to all of you about a subject that I'm personally very passionate about and which I find very important right now and not least for the future of our company fl smith the theme is as you can see here growth through digitalization and i will spend the next 15-20 minutes to take you through how we see this and how we see the future and how we see this as an important enabler for productivity thereby creating growth for fl smith basically what we see digitalization as is being one of the key levers we have to drive growth through productivity. you mentioned in his introduction the business model we have, which we find is quite unique, where we are both in projects, products, and services. When we talk services, it's both selling the spare parts, the ordinary services, and it's all the way to operating and maintaining the plants that we are selling. And that is an important vehicle also for driving the digitalization efforts that we have. And I will come more into that during the presentation. We are combining the business model we have with a number of levers that help us enhancing productivity internally and very importantly of course for our customers. We have through more than 100 years a unique process and product knowledge which enable us to operate to optimize the operations for our customers. We are able to guarantee the uptime of the plants, we are able to guarantee the performance of the equipment. Very important for the productivity improvements for our customers. And what we can do is that we are able to do it with a minimal environmental impact, and that goes both in terms of the energy input to the plants that we provide, and also to the emissions out of the plant. Very important is also our service offering. Lars also mentioned in his presentation that we are present in more than 100 locations, through integrated offices, through super centers, through smaller local service units, very important for us is to be close to our customers, wherever they are. And then finally, and that's the theme for my presentation, is how we drive operational excellency through digitalization. Important, an important message for me is that FL Schmidt has actually been on the digitalization journey for decades. Tom, as you mentioned, starting in the 1960s, already when we delivered the first plants, more than 100 years ago, we had the simple machine control systems, those were with relays and manual handles and so on, but that was really the start of our journey. And with all the process, project, and plant competences we have developed over the year, it means that we really consider ourselves as the subject matter experts in all of these areas, whether it's machine control, process optimization, and complete plant optimization. We've developed and sold these systems over a number of decades. Thomas, you mentioned that I have been here since 1992, and already when I started, now almost 25 years ago, we were having advanced control systems, we had it on Windows screens, and we were there starting really the digitalization journey, where we started to develop also the automated control systems, which I would like to tell you more about a little bit later. What we see is that for us, the increased focus on digitalization is what we call a critical enabler for our productivity journey going forward. Now, what does digitalization then actually mean in our context in F.L. Schmidt? Just to give you a brief flavor of this, I would like to take a cement plant as an example. What you see on the screen here is that on the left side, we have the typical on-site operation, where the plants are physically located. This is where we have the machine control systems. We also now have complete plant control systems. And then on top of that, we can add the process optimization systems. These are the technologies and the systems that we have developed over the last many decades. What is really new and what has happened over the last few years is that with the new technologies, we are now able to take all the data that we already have in the plant side, extract it, pull it out of the system, up in the cloud, into regional or central centers, take it into our digitalization platform, and then we are able to provide services now only directly in the plant side, but also remotely. And this is really how we see the future developing. And we are already a long way in that journey. On the right side here, you will see some of the services that we are now able to provide remotely, I mentioned a few examples here. One is condition monitoring, so we can constantly and online monitor the health of all the equipment that we are surveying on our plants. Predictive maintenance is a critical issue in terms of improving productivity. We can already in advance now see when do we need to maintain the equipment, not waiting for things to occur that should not happen. And we can do that not only being in the plant site, but we can do it from central locations. Optimization of power and fuel consumption, we get all the live data in, and we can remotely support our customers in optimizing these important parameters. And The last one we just mentioned here is the spare parts management, which is critical to our customers when they want to optimize their working capital. As I mentioned, this is something we have worked on for many years, for decades. And I would like to just give you a couple of examples of the advanced systems that we have developed, we are already selling and have actually sold in quite significant numbers. Because this is a very strong and solid platform that we believe that gives us a unique opportunity to take this digitalization journey further than we see any of our peers doing. This example is our advanced process control system and what it basically does is that it can run a complete plant on autopilot. It takes all the data, the thousands of data from all our machines, all our processes, gather these data, analyze them based on algorithms that we have experienced from throughout the decades we have worked with this and then automatically and real time immediately adjust the processes to the optimal level. And as you can probably imagine, if you have advanced systems like that, they can analyze and react to this much faster than any human being is ever able to do. So what we see is that typically if we go in on a plant which is already optimized but being run in manual mode, which is still most of the plants in the world, when we provide these systems, we can immediately increase production rates by at least 3 to 5%. In terms of fuel savings... We also see similar improvements, two to four we say in kiln applications and three to six in mill applications, on plants that are already optimized in manual operation. And then, last but not least, we can reduce the variability and the quality of what comes out of the cement plant by up to 30%. So with such a tool, we believe we are able to address the key business challenges that our customers are facing rising energy costs we all know about, fluctuating demand, that is what we see in many of the markets that we operate in, and then many of our plants are located in areas where you see scarcity of personnel. And having mentioned the importance of the product quality and the challenges of getting the variability at a level which will optimize your production, I would like just to introduce one of the other very advanced tools that we are providing to our customers. This is an automated material flow control system. And here again I'm using a cement plant as an example. In a cement plant you take in a lot of different raw materials. It's typically limestone, can be clay or sand, it's iron ore, can be a few more components. And you can imagine when you mix this you have to do it in exactly the right proportion because the chemistry of these material is not constant. It's coming from rocks, it's coming from soil, it's coming from natural resources. So there will naturally be a lot of variations. Typically, you go in and you take out manual samples, you test it, then you go out and then you adjust the process. You can imagine the time it takes. What we are able to now is to go out, put in what we call on-stream analyzers, immediately taking in all the data, analyzing the chemistry on the go, and then being able to adjust so that we get exactly the right chemistry into the process from the beginning. This is what you also see demonstrated here on the left side. And you can imagine if we can reduce the variability as is shown here, not only does it give a much better quality of the product, but it also means that we can design the equipment much more precisely to the needs of the customers. Because we don't need to take into consideration the fluctuations of this size. So it has a lot of added benefits This is what we call the Blend Expert Automation System. It's a very popular system. It's helping a lot of our products or customers improve their productivity. And with the latest uh, generation, which has been released just recently, uh, we have, again, a state-of-the-art product, which is based on experience from more than 700 installations we have worldwide of our quality control systems. As many of you will know, we have a relatively young business area called operation and maintenance. And this is one of the very strong vehicles we have to drive our digitalization efforts even further. We have right now ten production lines across five countries where we are delivering O&M services. And this gives us a very strong foundation to develop our, our digitalization offerings in these plants. We have direct data to all the um, production parameters on the plant, to all the data, to all the people, very direct relation to the customers there. And this is for us a very important vehicle where we have a unique advantage compared to most of our peers to really develop our digitalization platform further. And we use data-driven productivity improvements as a very important part of it. And if I just go to the next slide... I'll try to visualize how we do that. On the left side, you see here the business applications that you typically run in a cement plant. And it's everything from the very advanced systems and applications that we provide. And I just gave you a couple of examples in the previous slides. And then, of course, there are also other business applications can be from other vendors. It can be in terms of maintenance, in terms of health and safety, normal finance systems, etc. What we are now able to do is we take all the data from all these very different business applications and then we take it up and consolidate it into our business intelligence platform we prepare the data we analyze them we visualize them and we create dashboards for managers and operators so they can constantly follow and monitor all important parameters from their operation but then when we have the data there visualized we have them in dashboards and in reports we need to do something with it And from our business intelligence platform, we take the data, we take them into our performance management platform, and this is really from where we help optimizing the processes, we give online support, and we make sure that any issues that may arise, we can address immediately, and also we can do it remotely. Here you see some of the the data that we we are pulling in, and the very strong feature of this is that now when we have all these plants that we are operating, and also in terms of our customers, who often have a number of plants that they are running, they would like a consolidated overview, just like we would. And we are now able to take the data from all the plants, pulling them into one common platform, and then integrating the process between sites, specialists, and systems, and thereby providing the overviews and start the necessary actions to... uh, make sure that we have the most optimal processes. And it gives the management a full overview of uh, all the data that are presented. We can create work orders. We can start issues management. And this is all something that we can now provide in various applications. And I would, uh, if I had my my iPad over here, I would like just to give you one example of, of this, and I Of course, do not expect that you can all uh, see it from the behind there. But what we actually have is we have applications like this on the iPad, can be on the iPhone, can be on any mobile device. And this one I show here is direct access to all the own implants that FL Schmidt is running. And you can have the data as they are now. We have the last 24 hours, we can go back in time any way we want it. And I can go in and I can see basically any parameter that I want to see live on all the plants. And I have to say, being responsible for our O&M business also, I'm very pleased that I can at any time go in and I can see how the operation is. But of course, very importantly, this is something that our customers appreciate very much. And I have no doubt that we have the most advanced platform in this, and we are developing it further. Giving you a few examples uh, more, this is actually from our Blend Expert system, where we can go in and see how it's running. And here I have our inventory management system, which again is something that we can have live and on our mobile devices. So this is a very strong platform for us to develop our digitalization further, and we are, as you can see, already very far in this. But of course, it never stops. Last year, I would just like to show you a few examples of where we see areas where we will work much more in the coming years. We are already doing these things. You can see some of it here. The... HoloLens is one of the areas we are working in where we have our technicians that with live video uh, support from the site can with the HoloLens actually see and almost, almost feel the equipment as they were on site and thereby provide instant services to the people at site. Drones is another area. I'm sure you all know about how that is being implemented more and more. That can actually work very well in our cement and minerals plants. Because these are huge plants. We may mention here automated stockpile measurements, site inspections, even transport of tools are some of the areas we see. I mentioned a few other areas here. The whole area of artificial intelligence, where we can even further develop the optimization and automated tools that we have to run our plants. And then, of course, the whole IoT agenda. This is where we are taking data directly from the equipment in the cloud. And analyzing it on the go. So these are areas we are already working in and will work much for more on developing in the coming years and we really believe that this is giving us a unique platform in the area of digitalization. So if I can just try to summarize what I have explained here the last 15-20 minutes, in FL-Schmidt we see digitalization as the key enabler of productivity enhancement. And as we know, we are in the productivity cycle, and we are the productivity provider number one. We believe this is a very important lever for growing our business in the coming years. Very important message is also not only that we are fully engaged, which I hope this has shown you, but also that we have the necessary competences and not least the very long experience in this area, which gives us a fantastic platform to develop it further. And then when we combine this with our O&M offering, we really feel that we have the perfect combination and the perfect vehicle to take on this journey to further levels in the coming years. Thereby driving the growth of FL Smith, which in the end is the purpose of what we are doing. So what I would like to do as a very last thing here is just to show you a small movie of the services that we are offering in relation to this.
2: get connected to a trustful and reliable partner. Optimization will always be something we strive towards. And while our customers have great awareness of their cement plants, the region and market, FL Smith Operation and Maintenance, as a partner, can complement our customers' competencies and enable them to focus on the commercial success of their business. Choose your level of online support. Our online support center, OSC, provides you access to remote support and monitoring, systems and implementation, training, and constant support from the entire FL Smith organization. You have access to over 135 years of experience in cement industry without leaving the premises of your plant. With our new service, we increase productivity through five key components. Productivity platforms that contain real-time monitoring, business intelligence and performance management. The combination of these platforms enables the true potential for cement plant owners by using technology that drives you towards your operational excellence. At the heart of OSC is the people. They are the carriers of the knowledge and process and who support managerial, supervisory and execution functions in all areas of your plants. The setup is flexible and can be tailored to match the specific requirements in your daily operation. On-site advisors who create an efficient communication between your plants team and our online support center, boosting the effects of collaboration and leading to a positively motivated working environment. FL Smith Operations and Maintenance provides tailor-made training for your staff that is built around the features particular to your plant's operation. Our team will be there to support you through our classroom and on-the-job training platforms. As the interaction between machines, users and computer systems becomes more integrated, FL Smith continues to develop new solutions based on the latest technology. As the Internet of Things (IoT) begins to shape the current landscape of cement production, intelligent computing models will drive its future. These technologies will soon allow us to diagnose the health of equipment with greater precision, predict failures and the timing of spare parts. They will further optimize and automate the process of your cement plant, whilst simultaneously increasing productivity and reducing costs. By connecting your plant to our online support center, you will be ready to capture these benefits. Improve your plant management, maximize your output and minimize your risks by getting connected to your value-adding partner. FL Smith, operations and maintenance.
3: Okay, so thank you very much for your attention. I hope this has given you an very good impression of how we see digitalization how we intend to develop it further in the coming years we do not see digitalization as a standalone product we see digitalization as a key enabler in being the productivity provider number 1 thereby driving the growth of F.L. smith and our customers thank you very much
0: In the next uh, presentation, uh, Grow Through Innovation, Manfred, I have it here, I have it here, <laughs> in control. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Manfred is with us since 2014, he is actually longer working in the mining industry as me, what a what a thing, and he will guide you through, uh, yeah, Grow Through Innovation, and it will be more technical, which we think is very important to give you substance when we talk about a new uh, invention to the market. Yep, Manfred, your stage.
4: Thank you very much, Thomas, Um, and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I have the privilege of talking to you about um, innovation as a growth driver and um, productivity through innovation. Uh, What I will uh, do is I will... uh, talk a little bit about how we see uh, innovation, how we manage innovation in F.L. Smith, and why we believe uh, now is the time that this can become a a big lever for growing the uh, productivity. I will then use two examples, um, uh, the dry-stack tailings, uh, which is a technology how to handle tailings uh, on a mine facility, and another example, the ROL, the Rapid Oxidative Leaching Process, as a uh, recovery process for precious metals and copper, um, two examples of how we think about uh, transformational uh, innovation things within F.L. Smith, and then uh, at the end I will give you a short glimpse of what this could mean uh, to the mining industry and to F.L. Smith. You know that uh, innovation and mining, you probably say, well, uh, way, uh, mining is not known as a, you know industry that embraces uh, innovation. And that is true for the past because it was very much about managing risk. Uh, Mining is a capital-intensive industry where people mitigated the risk by basically copying what was already proven in the industry. But things have changed in the mining industry. And, of course, with the dropping of the commodity prices, uh, more and more people are coming under pressure. And uh, they need to look about new ways how they can reduce their costs. There has been great uh, progress uh, from lots of the mining companies in reducing their costs. But honestly, this was all uh, supported partly by, you know, lower energy costs, better foreign currency exchange rates and a lot of other things. Uh, and there is still pressure on the mining companies to reduce their costs because some of the savings what they have might not be sustainable. At the same time, when you look at mining, there is uh, room for growth through innovation because, uh, When you compare, for example, the utilization of the equipment with other industries like oil and gas and so on, it is very clear that mining has room to grow. And uh, sooner or later, they will have to grow and become on par with other industries. So we believe now is the time where more and more mining companies will look into innovation and how they can uh, embrace innovation to improve their productivity. In FL-Smith, of course, we have always uh, had a high focus on innovation. And um, even during the tough times over the last few years, we have kept our share of investments in R&T. We have um, world-class facilities that allow us to do research and development and support our innovations. Uh, They are spread all over the world, and we are capturing all the brain power, what we have in the organization. But at the same time, we realize that uh, there's other competences out there. And we have a model that we partner up with universities and other uh, front-running organizations that help us to complement the competence what we need for driving our R&Ds and our innovations. And also, what we do is we partner up with customers to make sure that we understand the customers' needs. They give us the input to ensure that our innovations will meet the needs of the industry and that we are developing something fully aligned with what the industry needs. Of course, there's different ways of innovation. (laughs) What do you see, and we announce very much on every quarterly announcement, we have the normal, closer to the core type innovation where we constantly improve our products, our processes, and uh, to keep up to date that we always have the most competitive products and the most competitive technologies. But there's also some longer term innovations And they, of course, take more time in the development, but also into the introduction into the market. And I want to talk today about some of two examples of this longer term, but more transformational technologies and innovations that have the potential to significantly change the way how we do certain things. These are things what you have seen in our announcement. And my colleagues later on today will talk about some of the things where we have constant innovation on Critical products like cyclones or wear parts and these kind of things. And uh, what I'm talking here today is not is over. And in, in addition to the R&D, what we do on the existing offering on, on the existing products. There's two transformational innovations I will introduce to you today. And uh, as Thomas mentioned, I will try to find the balance between not being too technical, but at the same time also give you enough substance that you understand what we're trying to achieve here. One is the tri-stack tailings. As I said, this is a, a new concept that will eliminate the need of uh, tailings stamps and uh, completely revolutionize the tailings facility management. And the other one is the rapid oxidative leaching, which is a, a leaching process uh, for getting better recovery out of complex ores uh, in a leaching process. So I start with uh, tri-stack tailings. Um, some of you might not be familiar with the term tailings. Let me briefly explain uh, what tailings really is. Uh, in most of the mining processes, uh, to get the mineral or the, uh, out of the ore, you use a wet process. The ore is crushed and then milled to a fine powder. Water is added and then normally you have a flotation process where you add chemicals and uh, a frosting type of process, and the mineral or the metal is taken out of the slurry that consists of the fine-grinded ore and uh, the water. But you normally, as we know, take out maybe 1% of the mineral, 99% of your is left over, and this is a slurry of water and mud, and this is a waste material, and every mine, of course, tries to get rid of this in the cheapest possible way. The cheapest possible way is maybe not the environmental-friendliest way, and this is, of course, where we start to come in and where we are providing offers to the industry. The cheapest way is basically you build a tailings bond. You build an artificial dam, and then you just bump out the tailings and let it settle there. And uh, most of you have probably heard the problems with this. This is, of course, a big environmental impact. Also, the tailings dams... They're not the safest things. And when you see at the chart over the last 30 years, we have not really been able to improve the tailing stem management. On average, we had about 20 failures per decade, or on average two major tailing stem failures uh, per year globally. And, uh, of course, this is a big liability that every mining operator has, and you all have heard about some of the problems some of the major mining houses have faced with this type of tailings facilities in the past. Why is this still happening? Why are we not making progress over the last 30 years in managing better our tailings facilities? Well, tailings dams are basically uh, dams uh, which, of course, are not very solid uh, in terms of seismic events or so on. Of course, they can easily be damaged. But then you also have the risk of uh, climate changes, floods, or overflooding the tailings dams, And then, of course, you also have uh, human error, mismanagement, and other things. And these kind of things you cannot eliminate. Uh, As you see on the chart, a lot of the tailings facilities are in areas of high seismic activities, and these kind of things, or in high uh, monsoon-type areas. So there's a certain liability that every mining company has operating these tailings stamps. In addition to that, of course, uh, this wet process in mining is a very water-intensive process. At the same time, we realize that water is becoming more and more a scarce commodity uh, globally. And you see more and more people fighting for water water rights and these kind of things, especially industrial versus agricultural use of water and these uh, problems. Uh, just to give you an indication, an average copper-concentrating plant that produces roughly 100,000 tons of tailings uh, per day Uh, they will use approximately 70 million litres of water per day. Now, this is roughly the consumption of a big city, just for running one copper concentrator. And most of these mines are now facing the challenge, if they want to increase production, they have not enough water available, or, of course, some of the water rights will be limited because of their neighbours and the surrounding uh, um, society is not allowing them to use more water. So they have a clear challenge. And this challenge is certainly increasing. So what we are talking about here is the so-called filtered or dry stack tailing solution. What this really is all about is that after you take the tailings uh, from the flotation process, you take a filtering technology and make uh, separate the water and make a a dry filter cake that you can handle in a very conventional way, similar like wet sand. Uh, this will address, of course, most of the problems that we have because when you have then the dry sand, you can stack it and this will significantly reduce the footprint of the tailings facility versus having a big tailings pond. Also, of course, you recline the water and you can recirculate this into the process and so you don't need to add a lot of water to the process. You have a closed loop and this will help, of course, to significantly reduce the water consumption. Of course, you reduce... Uh uh, the liability and the risk what you have with this. And, of course, this is also very important. Also important is that at the end of the mine, you have to do something. You have to reclaim the land what you have used for the tailings bond, and this can be very expensive. So you need to have reservations for that in your um, accounts. And but last but not least, of course, as I mentioned before, from the flotation process, you have certain heavy metals, you have um, chemical rests and things like that, in the tailings, and, of course, you have also the risk of seepage into the groundwater. So there's a lot of uh, risks, and the filter tailing solution will address these risks. Again, just to give you a, an uh, idea what we are talking here and why we believe this is really such a big uh, change in the industry, uh, I've used here uh, average-size or larger-size uh, facility, uh, compact concentrator, that produces 120,000 tons of tailings per day. And there's different technologies, different steps. There's, of course, thickeners, where you can take a certain amount of water out. Let's say you reduce the water content, as I've shown here, from uh, 70% to uh, 45%, but still it's a substantial amount of water. If you then go into the filtered solution, like we are suggesting, you can reduce, of course, uh, the water consumption, and you can bring it, Uh, the water content basically down to 18 to 20%, which you normally have in in wet sand kind of material. As I've mentioned before, uh, if you think that um, it's going to use about uh, this type of facilities, 84 um, million liters of water, or 84,000 cubic meters of water per day, with this filtered solution, you could significantly reduce this. And uh, in some of the world, uh, water is very expensive. Most of the Chilean organizations, for example, they have to desalinate the water and then pump it up to the mine. The costs of water are 4 to $5 dollars, uh, per cubic meter. With this water savings, what you have here, you could save up to, in this example, $81 million in water costs per year, uh, because you do not need all this fresh water. And over the 15-year life of a mine, this could amount to $1.2 billion. So it's a significant amount of money what we are talking here. Why has this not been introduced to the uh, industry before? And I've shown here different technologies. Of course, um, the conventional one is just build build the dam, build the facilities, and pump it out. Of course, you can put in thickeners, take some water out, and then there's more advanced where you go into base thickening and other things. The problem with the filtered solution up so far was that we do not have enough filter capacity, and running a lot of filters in parallel is very expensive. With the introduction of the new filter technology, what we have now, we can address this. And our target is that we will do this at costs that are equal or lower to the conventional technology, but then provide all the other benefits from the environmental, operational, and water scarcity point of view, what I've mentioned before. Of course, uh, this is also a big opportunity for us. Uh, When you look at the total amount of tailings facilities that are being operated and that are newly built, uh, there's a lot of opportunities. And of course, these facilities are uh, quite expensive in terms of capital investment and things like that. So we are talking here on an accessible market for our dry-stack tailings facilities, certainly in excess of um, uh, yeah one billion dollars for the next decade, uh, depending on the size, of course, such facilities could be from 50 to 100 million or two 300 million dollars, depending on the annual capacity. And of course, the interesting part is they also generate a lot of aftermarket because you have to filter cloth that has a limited lifetime; and needs to be replaced. What is special about FL-Smith, why we believe we can be, and why we are the front-runner in this type of technology? We have all the components, the technology, the know-how in-house. No other company can offer the complete solution like we can. All the products what you need, sickening, filtration, bumping, material handling, we have it in-house. We understand the process. We understand the chemical combustion of uh, the material coming from the flotation and what is the best uh, filtering solution. We can all put this together because we have, in our unique model, the project competence to integrate these products and then, if needed, also run it on a build, operate, and transfer type of arrangement and basically provide the water back to the miners. So it's a complete model, and we have the opportunity to offer this to the industry. Where are we in this development from the timing point of view? We have started with this roughly three years ago. We have decided that the industry needs high capacity economic resolution for filtration. And we have uh, developed what we call the colossal filter. This is a huge filter with a high capacity. And uh, last year, we have entered into an agreement with a large copper mining company in um, South America. And we have built a pilot plant It will provide us all the data that we can further develop and de risk this technology. And of course, with the data that we are collecting at the moment, this trial facility has started operation a few weeks ago. We will then be able to offer a commercially viable solution to the industry. And after a certain ramp up period, we will have a full blown commercial offering for that. This is just a picture of this facility, what I just mentioned in South America. Um, and um, it's important for us to have this, because we need to T-risk this. Nobody's going to, you know, give us an order for something that has not been technically proven. The mining industry is not known to be, you know, to take the risks. Everybody wants to be first, to be second. So we are now working with some major miners to be first to first, and um, introducing this. But then, of course, the idea is that this will build the foundation that uh, we can introduce this to the market with limited risk to the customers, but also limited risk to us. We have, at the same time, another important development for dry stack tailings. Some of you might even have seen, we have announced an agreement today with um, Gold Corp, uh, one of the biggest gold mining companies globally. And they have the same problem, licenses for some of the gold mines for some of their dry stack tailings facilities. What they are also, they've gone one step further, and they have said, look, this wet, drastic tailings, we can use this in a a smarter way. We can combine this with some of the waste rock we have from the overburden removal, co-mingle and blend this, and then pile it and stack it together. And they have done some testing. We're working together with them for quite a while now with very encouraging results. What you do is you take the coarse material from the waste rock, and then you co mingle it with the, tris- uh, with the tailings with the tristec tailings. and the tristec tailings, the fine material fills the gaps in between. So this provides a very stable pile that you can uh, build, but at the same time it also stops the entry of oxygen into the, into the void between the rock. And this, of course, is very important because then you stop oxidization, and that will stop uh, the risk of seepage and the toxic material seeping into the ground. So this is uh, what they call echo tails that has been developed together with us. And it's also a very exciting development because it not only addresses the problems with the tailings, it also gives solutions uh, how to handle the overburden and the tailings together. So our tri tri-stack tailing solution really addresses most of the concerns what every mine has, what to do with the tailings. Uh, It reduces the remote uh, amount required, and it also eliminates a lot of the liabilities and risk what you have with conventional uh, tailing stamps. It provides you the opportunity to stack at very uh, big heights uh, the the tailings and reduce the footprint and also then reduce the environmental impact. And we believe that in the future, more and more... uh, Authorities will require this type of technologies just to minimize the environmental impact of the mining and to get the permit to operate the mine in certain uh, critical areas with uh, sensitivity to the environment. So much about drastic tailings. The other uh, technology and innovation I want to introduce to you is the rapid oxidative leaching. This is a very interesting process and uh, some of you might have seen that from the top 100 R&D award, this was awarded uh, with one of the leading R&D inventions last year uh, in all over over the industry, not only in mining. So this is a big, uh, what we call, game changer for the mining industry and it was internationally recognized. What problem are we trying to address with this RL process? There's a few things. First of all, we all know that the ore grades are dropping. I've used here copper, for example, which shows the drop of the ore grades over the last years, and this trend is going to continue. So more and more miners are facing the problem just to keep up with the production where they are. They need to mine much more. They need to mine more because, uh, uh, to get, to compensate for the lower grades. And of course, Not only is the grade of copper dropping, also the ore is getting more complex. So this is also then difficult to recover the copper out of the flotation process because you have uh, uh, more flotation to do and the recovery is becoming more and more difficult. The other interesting trend is, of course, the arsenic content in all the copper globally is increasing. And this is becoming more and more of a problem the way how you can uh, normally uh, treat this is it goes to a smeltering plant and of course the smelting plants have a certain limit of how much arsenic you are allowed to have because this will eventually go out of the uh, to the environment. Uh, uh, so far this is just being addressed by blending cleaner concentrate with arsenic-loading content, but of course this is not the long-term solution and the environmental constraints are getting tighter and tighter and uh, More and more smelting companies are facing the challenge what to do with the higher arsenic-loading ore. Last but not least, uh, uh, you have also two different types of uh, copper ores, the oxidative uh, ore and the the sulfide ore. And when you do a conventional leaching process, if you change to sulfides, your leaching uh, capabilities are reducing. That means... With your same production facilities, you leach less copper out of this. And this is showing you, for example, the drop in production, what some of these leaching uh, mines in uh, Peru and uh, Chile have over the last few years. And this trend will continue. So this is really substantial. They're operating basically at the same costs, but their production is significantly dropping because the leaching process is not so much efficient anymore because they have more sulfide ore. So they need to do something to compensate for this loss. And you see the loss is quite substantial when you believe that globally it's about 20 million tons of copper being produced. So this is a few percent of the global copper production that is affected just by these mines in Chile and in Peru. There are, of course, other technologies out there that address the problem of... um, what you have with sulfide ores and difficult leaching ores. The most common one is autoclaves. This is a technology that is similar to a cooking process, where you put the ore at high pressure and high temperature for 24 hours or so, and you leach the material out of this. This is a very expensive process. It's a patch process that takes quite some time. It's high pressure, high temperature, and the facilities here are, of course, Uh, quite expensive. So this has very limited uh, uh, use because of the high costs. There's also the process of ultrafine grinding. You can grind the material really ultrafine with below 10 microns and then uh, go into this process. But really to find, to grind the material ultrafine, this uh, takes a lot of energy and costs as well. So this is also not very uh, commercially viable. And there's other catalytic processes that have been proven in the, in the labs. But again, they have not made it to the, to the commercialization because of other complications. So the, we believe that the ROL, of course, addresses all of this. It's commercially very viable. And it has uh, the same or better results than what some of the other competitive technologies have. What does the ROL process do? First of all, it works over a large range of ores, from low-grade to high-grade concentrates, you can use it, there is no limitations. It is very effective. In 6 to 8 hours, you can recover uh, 97 to 99% of the copper, in this case, out of the ore. So it's very effective, you do not leave a lot of uh, copper in the ore. The OPEX is generally very low, because it's not a very capital-intensive process, and that is, of course, is also attractive. And uh, also, because it works at atmospheric pressure and relatively low temperature, there's not a lot of operating costs, which are, uh, and this, of course, makes it also commercially more attractive. It's scalable. There's no minimum amount what you need. We can start at very low capacities, but then can go up to very high capacities. And also, what you get, this copper-pregnant leach uh, liquid that you get out of it, you can use the standard electro-winning type facilities that most of the mines have, and you can easily attach this to brownfield facilities. Most important, of course, from the environmental point of view, it also will separate the arsenic problem from the copper. And um, it's not only that you do not then smelt the concentrate with the arsenic in smelters, you also do not need the arsenic load concentrate to transport it through different countries, which is also becoming more and more a safety issue. And last but not least, of course, all this together is very interesting from the environmental point of view as well. Just to give you a little bit of a flavor, what we are talking here and why this uh, process is special and why we have the whole process family patented, uh, we have two steps in this ROL process. We take the concentrate and then we bring it in contact with copper-loaded liquid, Uh, This changes the surface structure a little bit. Uh, It breaks up the structure of the the mineral. And uh, at the same time, it uh, changes a little bit the mechanical properties of the ore. What we do then is uh, we take the ore and with some gentle abrasion, we remove the film what you have normally around the ore uh, and which normally stops the the leaching. After we have removed this film, then of course the leaching process is very effective the agent the oxidant can enter into the ore and it uh, can then remove 99 to 97 percent of the ore so this is basically the, the process what stands behind this what is the market opportunity for rol What you see here is we have globally about 22% of the copper production which has an arsenic problem, which sooner or later I think the society will ask the copper miners to address. They will not allow them to produce uh, this copper with the high arsenic content without the proper solution how to separate the arsenic. So this is a substantial market that we are addressing here. But also then you have the change, what I said, from the oxide to the sulfide ores, and that uh, has an impact on the leachability of these ores, and this is also quite a substantial market. So if we just assume that about 20% of the global copper production uh, will be of interest for this Rl process, of course this is a huge market opportunity because we all know the copper production price. If you multiply it up, you know that we are talking a potential here of uh, yeah up to 20 billion dollars per year in in copper production costs from this um, uh, problematic, more complex ores or more arsenic-loaded ores. The other interesting aspect of the ROL process is, as I mentioned before, it can be added to existing processes. And this is what we're doing at the moment. We're talking to different miners that have that challenge, that have the challenge of arsenic, that have the challenge of dropping ore grades and the flotation not being so efficient, that have the challenge of... um, the, the leech, heap leaching process is not working. And we can offer for them a brownfield solution, how we can add ROL to their flow sheet and then compensate for some of the problems what we have mentioned earlier. So there's a lot of different angles how we can enter the industry before we, of course, then have the proven concept and, of course, go into commercial greenfield operations. This makes it, of course, very interesting as well because you do not need to take the high risk when you introduce this. Where are we with this whole process, timing-wise? Again, we have um, in the lab about uh, three years ago what we call uh, broke the code and found the the secret behind this uh, ROL process. That was then proven in in the lab. And last year, we have built a a pilot plant in our lab in Salt Lake City, together with a partnership with BSF, who provides all the chemicals needed for this. Uh, and have uh, demonstrated that this process really exceeds our expectations in terms of uh, reliability, recovery, and uh, commercial viability. We are now testing it also with other ores uh, and with other minerals. At the same time, we are now preparing for another demonstration plant, and demonstration plant will be a plant that we built at the mine site together with a customer to demonstrate that this process, of course, is also on a large scale viable and that, of course, will give us other uh, entry points into the industry. I have talked a lot about copper, because copper is the most important mineral that we handle in F. L. Smith. But, of course, this ROL process is not just limited to copper. I've used here the gold example, and uh, especially refractory gold. In refractory gold, you have a lot of very fine gold embedded into the, into the rock And it's normally very difficult. The normal cyanide uh, uh, process or uh, carbon absorption process doesn't work very well. Well, we've done some first testing with uh, refractory gold and also received very encouraging result about the efficiency of ROL on uh, this type of, of mineral. So beyond the copper, we see a lot of other potential applications for the ROL process. In a similar way, as you have seen it for tri-stack tailings, the ROL addresses a lot of different aspects. It's environmentally friendly. It's commercially viable. It addresses a lot of the problems that the copper miners and other miners are facing. So after the commercial entry and commercialization of this technology, we see a very huge opportunity in applying this in, in lots of different ores and a lot of different operations. To summarize this all up. Both examples, the dry stack tailings as well as the ROL, they are environmental and commercially attractive innovations. They will uh, really have the potential to change some of the processes in the mining industries. And at the same time, they will also address the commercial problems that a lot of the mines are under. They are all under pressure. What can I do different to get a lower cost production out of um, uh, my operation? ROL can be the answer. And so this, of course, longer-term and more transformative innovations will add to our strategy and to our vision that we provide sustainable productivity enhancement to the industry. And I've also put up just a glimpse of the market potential, what we see for the tri-stick tailings as as, as well as the ROL process, what would be the accessible market for this uh, technology. As you've seen on the timeline, it takes a while to introduce this. But once uh, we have int- introduced this, and of course, all this is protected with patents and so on, we see great potential how these innovations can add to the bottom line and productivity of Ethel um, Smith. So thanks very much for your attention. I hope it was not too technical. And I hope you're also excited about the opportunity that we see in this innovation. Thanks very much. What um, just so uh, we have the lunch break now, I'm uh, happy to announce that to you. I hope you enjoy the lunch and the refreshments, and I would also like you, if you still are interested, and I hope so, be back at 2 o'clock where we continue with other exciting presentations. Thanks very much.
0: I would like now to introduce uh, Brian Day. He is our... EVP and management team member for customer service and product company division, and he will drive you through the life cycle management, grow through life cycle management. He is one of the younger employees, what we have, he is only 38 years with us, not more. Enjoy it.
5: Can you help me, help me on the stage, Thomas, <laughs> <or would you? laughs> Good afternoon and uh, thank you Thomas and thank you all for the opportunity to have 30 minutes of your day. I really appreciate it. I'm going to talk about life cycle management today, but I want to hit on a couple themes from this morning. We saw the process expertise that we have, the new innovations we have, digitization. Thomas talked about life cycle management going back to 1902. We've been doing this for a lot of years. He talked about the longest recession in the history of mining. And in the 38 years I've been in this business, I haven't seen anything like the last seven years. And I will say that coming out of this slightly, the bottom of the trough coming out, the game has changed significantly in the way our customers are viewing the future. And I think uh, we saw a cost cutting at, at in most uh, facilities for seven years, now they're looking at asset management. So what I'm gonna talk about today is some significant game changers and the fact that we realize there's a gap between what most people are gonna take to market and what we're gonna deliver and how we're gonna deliver on that. And we positioned ourselves for this, as you saw, with the efficiency program, with the way we've structured the organization, with the competencies that we have right now, we're ready. We're ready to go. So I think this presentation is gonna talk about some things that are going forward, a lot on what we're already doing, but uh, there's some significant things we're gonna do here in the area of life cycle management. We talk about CapEx. Most of the time we talk about product sales, project sales, the big dollar sales, and we're world-class in products, and we're world-class in putting together complete cement plants, as you saw in Pear's presentation this morning. When you look at the life cycle of equipment, that's about 25% of the spend over the life of that equipment. And look at a car, if you buy a car, equate it to the purchase price of the car if you were to put four three times of that over the lifetime of the equipment. And that's the conversation of today in this opex side. The, the overall maintenance, the parts, the rebuilds, the retrofits, call it total cost of ownership. So I view the product sales as the tip of the iceberg. Anything we do after that and add value with our customers to lower their cost of ownership, that's where we play the game, and we play it in a strong way. So total cost of ownership is going to be something we're going to talk about here in the presentation. If you look at the the setup that we have, and you've seen the triangle around projects, products, and services, the structure that we have from an overall support standpoint, product line management. And I think Pear referred to them as subject matter experts. These are world-class people that can go to remote parts of the world and they understand product development, R&D, the install base, the process, upstream and downstream of their equipment. World-class guys in product line management. What they're doing now is they're looking at the total life cycle in a much stronger way. So before when we might have focused more on product sales, they're starting to look at the full value chain of how do we capture that other 75%. We do a lot of value engineering in our products. Lower the cost by 20 to 40%. How do we make it safer to maintain? How do we make it easier to take in and out the parts? So I think from that standpoint, we have a lot of value that we order offer in the product line management area. When you look at research and development, from a wear parts perspective, about 40% of what we're spending in R&D is in wear parts. We've got 115 projects in queue. We've got 21 active projects now. We launch on average 10 new innovations a year, and the average cycle to launch them is 10 months. So this is very quick stuff that we develop quickly. We get it to market, and we get it sold. And last year, we had 10 that we brought. You'll see a couple examples of new technologies that we've brought to the market that address this productivity cycle. Our Lars talked a bit about procurement, supply chain management. That's key, getting way upstream of that from a critical spares. When they get into a productivity cycle, the customers in cement and minerals, they expect that we're going to have the critical items available for them when they need them. So that's near and dear to what we do when we do R&D. We work work with uh, procurement to develop the uh, selling streams we're going to use when we take it to market well in advance. So growth through uh, a life cycle management, strategic ambition, I think from 2014, the last time we did this, we talked about best-in-class and productivity and return on assets. So we've been at this for a lot of years in the area of customer service, and we've been at it for a lot of years in the company in general. I think maximizing return on assets, the conversations that we're having with customers, I think a lot of people in this room would enjoy that conversation more now today than in the past. They're talking about their cash position in the mine, on their assets. They're talking about production levels now that they're starting to ramp up by what dates and what they've committed in cash, what they have for spend, and what they've told the marketplace they're gonna deliver from a production standpoint. That's a new conversation from a business standpoint for a lot of people in that you have to understand when you go in, how you get on top of that from an asset management standpoint. That to me is a is a lot of fun, and I think we're we're one of the best in uh, the the world at doing that going forward. Support our install base, 130 years of install base, uh, huge install base, value added spares. We'll talk about how we do that. Upgrades and retrofits. We saw in quarter one about a double up in our rebuild and repair business. So we're starting to see a little bit of release of money. We're cautiously optimistic, but we're starting to see some activity for sure. And then we talked about growing our wear parts business in 2014 to 10% of our business. And I'll show you what we've done since 2014 and where we're going with that. I think leading edge and advanced technologies digitization, I think PEAR represented that very well this morning. I won't go into that in detail, but that all comes into play when we talk about rebuilds and retrofits, how do we put monitors on things? How do we sense things? How do we do preventative maintenance? I think Thomas made the comment earlier today, how do we advise customers that they need something before they even know they want it? Getting way upstream from a preventative maintenance standpoint. So, looking at the mix of of what we do, and... uh, You've heard, most of you would know, 70% in the parts and rebuild area, 30% in services is historically what we represent. This is a little bit more of a detailed breakdown. And if you look at the breakdown on where parts in particular, which is the topic of today, about 5% of what we do, when you look at some of our peers, they're north of 50%. And I'll explain why in a minute. But overall the parts business, the maintenance, the services, there's a bundled offering here, but there's a golden nugget or a big opportunity for us in wear parts. We decided years ago not to aggressively go after wear parts. And I think uh, you look at the uh, foundries and people that were local, most of the mine said, we want to go direct to the foundries. We don't see you in the value chain. Uh, the margins are lower. Um, we didn't play so, so well in that area. We've seen in the last four years, foundries start to reach out to us based on what we offer from a process standpoint, from a rebuild standpoint. You'll see when we bundle things, it's not about selling steel. So they want to get on board with that, and that's a change. That's something that we didn't see probably four or five years ago. Stronger partnering in that area, we've got five or six that we've partnered with now, some of the bigger players and also some of the boutique foundries that are now working with us. And, uh, I'll talk to where we think we can go with that. Uh, we're expanding in different areas of the world. We're getting multiple year contracts on liners now. So this is one that's, uh, interesting and I think I'll talk a little bit more about that in detail in the presentation. So what did we say in 14 in where, regards to where parts and where are we going? In 14 we had an ambition. The Wear Parts business was less than 1% of our total business, very small component. At that time, we announced we wanted to grow it to greater than 10%. We hired a dedicated product line manager for Wear Parts. We put KPIs in place to de- and developed a business plan. We brought in three metallurgists that are world class in strategic parts of the world to look at how we uh, develop the liners to last longer. Uh, We put in seven R&D projects around liners. Again, 40% of what we delivered last year. And we saw this start to take off. Then we started talking to the foundries in mid-16, and we saw that they were willing to partner with us. We did our drawings for our wear part liners, customized the drawings for fit, branded them with the uh, uh, suppliers, And then we started coming up with this bundling concept around wear parts, and I'll talk to that a little bit more. 17, 5% of our business, uh, new customers and geographies, multiple-year contracts, three-year contracts on liners. Never done that before. And we had three in about a six-month period. So really, we're starting to see momentum in this area. It's one we're pretty excited about. And then we're looking at Sensors and monitoring, not looking at, we're doing it. How we look at uh, things, that how it cascades in the mill, uh, wear patterns on the liners, uh, detection of wear on the bolts, sensors for heat and vibration, predictive maintenance, so where the mill can maybe run a little bit longer versus going offline. When you take a mill down in a plant, it's a million dollars an hour. So anything you can do to get a mill up and running in a, reasonable size plant, we're talking significant money. And that's where we can add a lot of value in our value proposition when we bundle things in a service way. 2018, our target is to be north of 8% in CS. I think we'll deliver on that. One thing that we clearly do, and one thing that we're very proud of as a company, when we say something, we deliver on our promise. And we have, and we'll continue to do that. Clearly, we're focused on that in this area. 19, number one in productivity, and wear parts greater than 10%. I'd like to put 20% out there, but uh, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. When we talk about wear parts, I think the big big game changers for us are in crushing and grinding. And I'm going to show you a little bit about the equipment. I'm not going to get detailed from a process standpoint. I think Manfred did a good job on that, and I won't hold a candle to him, but uh, clearly, crushing and grinding is where we, you see the big wear parts. And over lunch, we were talking, when you line a mill at a mine in Peru, Antipakai or something, you're talking 265 trucks to line one mill. These are big steel pieces that are shipped from a foundry to a site that could be at elevation. So things we do with logistics, things we do with planning, Things we do with design on those to make them safe, near and dear to what we do, and we're experts in that. Flotation, polyurethane, rubber components, again, consumable items, centrifuges, the baskets, for those of you that know our flow sheet and our products. And then we get into screening, filtration products, the filter media that Manfred talked about on this big filter. They're some of the largest filters in the world that would be put in tailings. When that takes off, the media consumption and consumables on that is huge for us as a company. And we've developed a lot of technologies in filter media over the year. Thomas announced one last year where we had a dust collector that removed NOx and socks. So, I mean, we've got stuff that really is world class from a filter media standpoint. And then grates and coolers. If you look at our installed base, 130 years and you look at just, just crushing and grinding, gyratories and ball mills, you're looking at an installed base. We know what we spend per year when they, on parts and wear parts and liners. Look at the numbers multiplied. It's a $5 billion U.S. dollar business per year that we haven't tapped into. We've tapped into it to about 3% of our business. So the opportunity is pretty significant here. When you look at gyratories uh, on the left and crushing, or a ball mill on the right, there's going to be a video we show where it'll show you the scale of these things that we're talking about. But a gyratory crusher on the left is set in a mountainside where these huge trucks the size of this room pull up with boulders and they dump them into the crusher, basically. And the, the concave sections and the mantles wear as they vibrate and crush the rock. So that's, that's a wear part, consumable, that when you change them out in a site, it's significant. And you'll see the size of these in the video. Likewise, with a ball mill, you look at the typical liners, the shell liners. That's one piece of it. But when we take a mill down, it's almost like going into surgery. When you go in for surgery, if you're going in, give me the full exam, the full physical. Don't just look at my knee. And in this this scenario, we can hold the mill for a period of time while it's down, look at the discharge chutes, look at the pulp lifters, look at the other items, and we can, based on our knowledge of the equipment, guarantee 20% more throughput, 3% power draw, decreased water. So the things we talked about earlier environmentally around power, water, and such, we'll come in and bundle that. So what does that mean to the liner people They say, hey, we want to get on board with that. We're not selling steel anymore. You're going in and taking the mill down, rebuilding it, making it more efficient, and we can't do that. We don't have the process expertise to deliver on that. The other thing we look at is composites. When I talked about the weight, if we look at discharge cones and we change to different composites and change the weight by 50%, imagine what the transportation costs are in savings, they're significant. Imagine what the safety is in loading something into a mill that's half the mass. So there's a lot of opportunities for bundling in this area, predictive maintenance, the monitoring end of this. uh, This is uh, a big piece of the business for us going forward in wear parts. When you look at uh, that first slide, I talked about CapEx, 25%, and then I talked about the 75% being the bottom of the iceberg or the the, uh, spare parts. When you look at the availability of what we're talking about here in wear parts on a scale, it's, it, it'll dwarf our spare parts business when we get at it and get, start supplying the wear parts and the liners. It's big. If you look at the lifetime spent on a ball mill, 300 million DKK, and some of these mines are 10, 20, 30 year mines. Once you get that, uh, business on a repeated basis, three year contracts, it becomes an annuity. It also gets you in front of the customer, which is a key thing as well. If you're in there looking at consumable items in front of a customer, you're able to look upstream and downstream in the plant. And more than ever, customers are saying, in this productivity cycle, when you come in, I want you to debottleneck the plant. Well, what does that mean? Well, you probably need to understand the process from the front end to the back end, And they're also saying, and it's not just on your equipment. You need to understand the other people's equipment as well. It's not this anymore. It's not the finger point. We have assets that we're managing. We have a cash deliverable on the assets. Your world-class product people and process people come in and tell us how to operate the plant as efficient as we can and get it within those bands that Pair presented this morning where your operating range is like this. Could you imagine buying equipment when your band is like this? Because you're going to size it for the peak. Now we come in with equipment that's more efficient. You size it in the band. From a cost-effectiveness standpoint, dollar per ton of product, it's a lot better way to go from a spend standpoint. So we add a lot of value when we get engaged with the customers on a total offering like we're talking about. Some of the wear applications just, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but a lot of different types of wear. There's abrasion wear. There's erosive, high-pressure wear. And Pat's going to talk about pumps from an erosive wear. Impact wear. I'm going to show you a video on impact wear. You look at the material, they move around in a mine site, these big rocks on conveyors and chutes and trucks. It's a lot of grinding and crushing and dumping. It's heavy stuff. Sliding wear, uh, conveyors and chutes. And temperature, high temperature stuff, coolers and kilns. Below that, there's a lot of different technologies. And again, we look at all the different materials, designs, welding concepts, uh, composite alloys. One that we've patented or patent pending is this Ferrocer product that is an impact sliding wear. That's a game changer. We used the word game changer earlier, but to me, things that lasted two weeks are lasting up to 10 times that now. So it's a, it's significant changes. It's not little step changes anymore. It's gotta be a, it's gotta be a really big splash for the, to engage the customers. So the FerroSair, uh, where it's a impact panel and it's something that we're taught, you're gonna see in the video, we talk about chutes and liners, but you could put it in the bed of a truck or something as well. And we've got it operating in plants where they were changing these out every two to three weeks. And they're running 10 times that. Now, what does that do for somebody that's doing a maintenance uh, in an outage when you take a a mine or a cement plant down? You'd rather focus your attention on the core products like the crushers and the flotation stuff. You don't want to deal with lining your chutes and things like that. If you can take them out of the equation, you can move those folks over to work on the stuff, get it online quicker, and the return on investment to do that for them, again, a million dollars an hour by not having to spend any time with people on this kind of activity, you, looking at the math in the plan around the assets and running that model with them, it's, uh, it's the wave of the future and it's where we're going and, and actually we've been for a lot of years. So the video.
6: Today, minerals processing plants are sharply focused on finding ways to reduce maintenance and operating costs. Handling thousands of tons of large heavy rocks every day puts pressure on material handling equipment. Maintenance shutdowns caused by wear on the hopper, chute and deflector plates can quickly become a bottleneck in production. Take for example this minerals crushing station where several thousand tons of heavy rocks are processed every day. Lumps of crushed material produce heavy wear on the protective liners and require frequent shutdowns for relining of equipment. This discharge chute is lined with the revolutionary Ferrocer Impact wear panels. The patent-pending technology is designed to give the absolute lowest total cost of ownership on the market. Ferrocer Impact's unique matrix design fully utilizes the strength and malleability of steel and the superior abrasion resistance of ceramics. Weighing only 5kg, the compact shape of Ferrosair impact wear panels makes them safe and easy to install using only standard hand tools. Each panel is attached using a single bolt and nut. The mounting hole for the bolt is closed using an adhesive coated ceramic plug. There is no need for heavy lifting equipment and this reduces production downtime. As the panels get worn, the assembly design ensures that the ceramic inserts do not come loose. Ferrosair Impact is the perfect wear liner solution, combining extra-long wear life, reduced downtime, ease of installation and affordable pricing. From the moment Ferrosair is installed, mine operators can dramatically reduce downtime and operating costs, significantly improving productivity and profitability over the long term. That's predictable productivity in your material world.
5: Kind of gives you the scale of uh, the size of these trucks in the mine, but really, we this is looking at just shoots and uh, and hoppers. You look at lining the back of these big trucks, Caterpillar, Komatsu, people like that. So they're dumping rocks, bed life, and things like that would be an expansion for this product. Lowest total cost of ownership and productivity enhancers. Again, new developments to market, key, key to the future. So life cycle management, we look at uh, partnering with customers, and it's maybe it's a buzzword, but trusted advisor, if you go in and talk financial modeling with them around the products and the assets and generating their productivity deliver on their cash promises, you'll win the game but you've got to deliver on that, and you've got to be local to do it, and you've got to have the products to do it. You talked about productivity, availability, throughput, predictive maintenance, uh, lower total cost of ownership, all keys to what we do. Sustainability, a lot of what you've seen or heard today is around safety, around water, around energy, emissions. So anything we do, we take that into consideration the super centers that we built globally, corporate social responsibility. We do a lot in the local communities, environmentally and socially, to support local activities all around the world. Wear parts, uh, it's the missing link for us right now, the big wear parts. And you can see we're positioned for it. We're ready to go for it. We've already seen the business double up in a year and a half. We put the foundation in place. We've got the people there now. We've got a strong team. Uh, we're partnering with the right people in the foundry world. And uh, it's a great opportunity for us going forward. I think it's an untapped growth potential. I think one thing that uh, Per alluded to earlier was this asset mapping. We've got models that model total cost of ownership. So when we go into a plant, we'll plug in their data for their asset. So for a gyratory, we'll look at the size, we'll look at the conditions, we'll put operating factors on it, we'll put environmental factors on it. If it's a high monsoon area, if it's a seismic area, if it's at 5,000 meters, we might put a 0.8 factor on productivity on employees. So we put a number of factors on it to determine what the usage on parts are gonna be. We'll look at what what the scheduled maintenance is gonna be, and then we'll run the models around what's it gonna cost you to operate that piece of equipment for the next five years and how do we fit that into your budget and what are the critical spares that you need at site so when you do go down you're not losing a million dollars every hour we guarantee that we have the critical spares there and that's getting closer to your customers where we take a bet on what's critical with them and they're usually larger dollar items and we have them ready and available overall maintenance uh for us is uh the name of the game, and where we play. So this life cycle management for us, core to what we do, and uh, we're ready to take it on. The second part of this was uh, growth through products. Uh, Thomas talked earlier today about uh, product offerings. So we've talked about innovation, digitization, life cycle, more of the parts bit, but we have a a suite of product companies, and we have two of our strongest uh, product company managers here today to represent us. And if you look at what we have, most of you are familiar with it, but these are the suite of product companies that we have. And I won't read them all, but the ones we're going to talk to today is pumps and cyclones. You can see we have the gearing, uh, air pollution control, and uh, we're going to talk about the packaging piece. In this area, Thomas mentioned earlier today, there's opportunities for geographical expansion. A lot of the product companies or some of the product companies are more local or semi-regional or semi-global. There's opportunities in what we call white spots for expanding in certain areas, and I think you're going to hear that from our folks today. And there's also adjacent industries that we can tap into that they'll talk about. And again, a lot of this has to do with extended service offerings. How do we service our equipment? How do we get closer to our customers? This stuff is product sales, and it's a strong part of our overall portfolio. So the business units we're going to talk about today from a uh, revenue by application, uh, cyclones and pumps first, and then we'll go into packaging. And uh, I'd like to uh, introduce Pat Turner. And Pat's been uh, with the company for 35 years, and he's going to take us through uh, pumps and cyclones. Okay.
7: All right. All right, thanks, Brian. Um, So, again, my name is Pat Turner. I'm president of FL Schmidt Krebs. We are, I need to change my slide here. There we go. We are, of course, one of the product companies in the product company division. We're headquartered in Tucson, Arizona, in the United States. We have eight main business units located in the major uh, uh, mining areas around the world. And one thing I hope that comes through, um, Francesco and I are both very passionate about our products and our people are very passionate about our products. So I hope that that is uh, relayed in these presentations. So where do we stand right now in the marketplace? We're the clear leader in cyclones in the mining industry and we're number two in slurry pumps, but a fairly distant number two with room to grow. Um, the cyclones and pumps are important parts of the mineral processing plant. In fact, both of those products get higher visibility than what their actual cost component would indicate. So there's a lot of attention on those products. Um, both of them use lot, lots, create lots of spare parts and so there's a continuous service component to it. So what I'm going to talk today is about the growth opportunities. A uh, typical uh, mineral, pro- wet mineral processing flow sheet, a potash, a phosphate, a coal, all use the pumps and cyclones in conjunction with the rest of the F.L. Schmidt minerals. Now this picture on the right is a typical grinding circuit in a gold mine. So the run of mine ore comes up the conveyor belt and is fed into the sag mill on the far side. Water is added, the mill turns, then the balls crush the ore. The slurry continuously discharges, drops into a sump and then the pumps at the bottom pump the heavy slurry up to the cyclones under pressure. The cyclones then separate the coarse material from the fine material. The coarse material goes back to the mill for further grinding and the fine material goes on to the next process. In the case of a gold mine like this, it's most likely uh, uh, leach tanks. Now, you may notice something about these two pieces of equipment where they're located. Uh, so we have two types of people in our company. One, they like sunshine, nice breezes, they like to dress very clean and everything. Those are our cyclone experts because they're sitting up there on top, enjoying life. Then we have a second type of people. They like dark places, uh, mud, high humidity. You can guess, those are our pump people, and we call them sewer rats. <laughs> now, this plant's nice because there's no roof, and it's beautiful, but most plants have are completely enclosed, and it is truly uh, down in the sewer. Um, but you know what? We're, we're not number one in, uh, in 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 slurry pumps, but I know for sure we have the best sewer rats, and that's going to help us in the future. So... Um, now pumps are, you know, you could say they're the heart, they're pumping the heavy slurry to each unit operation. We manufacture the pumps from small to really big. Um, our biggest is 850 millimeter suction diameter, that's that size of that white pipe there. So a pump that size uh, will fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool in 15 minutes. So it kind of gives you an idea of what we're um, what we're pumping. But unfortunately, we're not pumping water. Or probably fortunately, we're not pumping water. We're pumping heavy slurry with rocks up to 25 or larger in diameter. So this creates extremely high wear. So designing a pump is a balancing act between high pumping efficiency and 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 controlling the wear. If you design the pump for high efficiency, it wears out really fast, like a water pump. If you design the pump just for wear, then it's very inefficient. So we use a combination of computational fluid dynamics and our pump lab, which is illustrated in the picture there, to try to balance those two competing criteria. Pumps also are easily replaced. So we can go to a mine next week and our pump, everything looks good. We go away, come back in December, pump is gone. So providing close customer intimacy on an everyday continuous basis is absolutely critical. But it also is the opportunity, which I'm going to talk about too. Cyclones has been around forever. The original cyclone patent is in 1891. um, And they were really introduced in the mineral processing area um, extensively in the 50s. And Krebs is pretty much... Um, been the leader in cyclones since about 1960 or so. And cyclones perform two really critical roles in the processing plant. First, like I mentioned in my example, they keep the coarse solids from going to the next unit operation, right? Usually flotation in copper or leach tanks in gold. You send coarse particles, recovery goes down. That's bad. The second thing they do is they work in conjunction with the grinding mill. Um, So the uh, combination of the cyclone and the mill working together is what optimizes the uh, milling efficiency. And that's critical because the big ball mills that we sell today have 20 megawatt motors on them. So utilizing that power is one of the key cost drivers in the entire plant. Now we've maintained our lead by driving uh, customer enhancements through uh, wear life mainly, um, this cyclone kind of has different colors on the inside. We're trying to depict different liner materials. The wear in the cyclone is highest at the bottom and lowest at the top. What all customers want is long cycle time. So we aggressively mix the ceramics and the rubber materials to even out and provide long, even wear life. And we've really built our lead in the marketplace by using that process. So it's a great uh, industry to be in, you know, the, um, uh, the mining industry is is growing four to five percent over over the cycle and one thing um, that I, I want to say is that it's a great industry in terms of the people in general. So everybody loves to go visit the, the mines, that's what we're all about is visiting the mines as often as possible and creating that customer intimacy. Um, Pumps and cyclones are purchased, obviously, with the capital project, but they generate lots of spare parts. And that spare parts business is really uh, driven by the throughput going through the concentrator or the mine, right? So if the, if the throughput's 100,000 and it goes to 120, the parts business probably goes up 30 or 40%. So that way we're not as affected by the commodity downturns um, as long as the cash costs uh, stay below the commodity prices. But one thing is for sure, the customers are demanding higher efficiency and uh, lower maintenance costs from the equipment. So we need to be close to the customer. So we're close with the sales people, close with the field service people, but we also have to be close with the parts. Um, One thing about pumps, is that some of the pumps installed in the mine, you wouldn't believe it, there is no standby pump. Pump goes down, half the plant could go down. So unplanned downtime is, is, um, is, is really a killer. I think Brian mentioned a million bucks an hour. Um, so having the spare parts and being able to react super fast with spare parts service is a key. So we use the FL Schmidt network of super centers and service centers located all in the uh, major mining areas to stock our parts close to the customer. I mentioned at the first that we're headquartered, uh, um, our product development, engineering and so on is in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, However, our revenue is fairly evenly split around the world. We have pumps everywhere, Um, so uh, it's just getting more of them that we want. Now we do have some white spots, so we work with our colleagues in the other F.L. Schmidt uh, business units to try to help increase our presence. And we're also opening new offices, like we're just opening a new office in Ghana for the West African uh, gold uh, sector. Um, The West African gold sector is actually very active, probably one of the more active mining areas for new projects that there is right now. Um, We have revenue in all five of our key target industries, but you will notice our largest revenue is in copper, second largest is in gold. F.L. Schmidt is strongest in copper and gold. And then also, those are the two industries that have the best near-term prospects, so we're well positioned in that regard. I mentioned we we're a number two in slurry pumps by quite a ways. Most of you know who number one is, it's the mineral division of, of uh, weir. And they are also the number two in, uh, in, um, cyclones. And I didn't mention it. We also sell valves. They sell valves, so we compete on that. So we're really, um, going at it pretty much on a daily basis. So we want to maintain our, our, and grow our cyclone market share. So we do it in two ways. We do it by lowering costs continually like I said about mixing the ceramics. I mentioned that the cyclones and the mills work together to optimize the mill power. We're by far the experts in working with the mill people and the operators to, to adjust the cyclone performance to optimize that. So we do that. Then the other thing we do is through technology. We have our relatively new patented Gmax cyclone. This is uh, the best performing cyclone in the market. And then we've combined that with the new smart cyclone system. This was developed in association with F.L. Smith Automation. And what it does is it measures the noise at the bottom of the cyclone. You see, it's hard to see. One side, the one on the right is sort of discharging like this. Okay. And the one on the left is discharging straight. Now, as you know, we're very technical people. So we call the one on the left roping. Because it looks like a rope. all right. So when the cyclone is roping, it's sending coarse solids to the overflow. And remember, that goes to flotation or the leach tanks. So if you had an upset condition with that roping for, for a significant amount of time, 30 minutes, an hour, you could get so many coarse solids in flotation, it could shut down the entire flotation line. So giving the operators real-time uh, signal that an upset condition is happening and then tying that to either automatic or a manual adjustment to fix that upset condition is what the smart cyclone does. Second, it measures the liner thickness. So, um, it gives the uh, operators in real time sort of an early indication when they're gonna have to do maintenance and they can then plan it more, um, more easily. Okay. I mentioned. Oh, I I I didn't mention, but in one in the in, um, slide that showed where, the various industry revenue, the one in the upper left corner there showed a lot of revenue in adjacency markets. That's mostly in cyclones, and it's mostly in ag- industries that are outside by a wide range of um, of mineral processing. But we use the same basic cyclonic designs, engineering. We have lots of different types of designs as you can see in this picture. So well, we get significant revenue but we don't have that very high of a market share in those areas. So we're working hard to increase our market share and some examples are desanding produced water in an upstream oil and gas well, um, desanding municipal well water, uh, recovering coke fines in a chemical refi- refinery and cleaning the water in an automotive plant paint system. So those are four pretty juicy applications that, that, that we compete in. So we're gonna do that through, uh, through more extensive use and development of OEM customers and specialized distributors. Now the pump, so this is a cutaway of the pump. So this is one of the most beautiful things that you could possibly see. And I could talk about this for quite a substantial amount of time. Um, But what we have is we have some uh, uh, features that provide first-in-class benefits to the customer that allow us to go to a mine and replace their pumps. And so I just want to show you, I I mean, I could have Manfred come up, but I'll do it. Show you a couple of uh, the features with a little bit of technical, um, is there a pointer? Is this the upper right that's a pointer? Or no pointer? No pointer. Okay. So in the, um, the you see the uh, pointing there to the proprietary wear ring. So this is a, 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 a wear, this wear ring is safely and easily adjusted and pushed up against a flat surface on the rotating impeller. And what that does is it seals the pump from suction side recirculation. Now I'm sure everybody knows that sealing the pump against suction side recirculation is super important. <laughs> what happens is a pump, the impeller generates head and the, and so at the up, at the outer edge of the casing, the pressure is higher, okay, than it is at the suction. Because that's what causes the slurry, right, to go way up in the air. So if you don't seal the gap between the rotating impeller and the suction liner, the slurry will run down the front of the pump and go back into the suction. So that obviously robs the pump of efficiency and creates substantial uh, turbulence that creates lots of wear. Other companies try to push the impeller up against the suction liner, the whole thing. And what that does, it just ends up creating a little mini uh, cone crusher in the pump. That consumes power and, and, and increases wear. So this is a clever way of doing it that, that gives us a big advantage. Second uh, benefit is our, is our bearings. Now this is very simple, but our bearings are designed so when you grease them, the grease goes in and comes out. Our competitors, you grease them, the grease goes in and goes into the center of the bearing assembly. It's one of the main causes of unplanned downtimes, is if you over-grease, the bearings of CCs and the pump will fail. So, features like this, combined with the wear materials um, and our many pump designs allow us to provide longer, more predictable wear life, higher energy, uh, lower power consumption through better pumping efficiency, safe and easy to maintain pump, and I mentioned the um, close stocking of the spare parts. So this is what the customers want, and this is why they'll replace the pump. So it's all about doing the pump replacements. These are the industries we all know and love, copper, gold, iron ore, and coal. We know where all the, all the uh, customers are, we know exactly. Most of them already have our cyclones, so we have an advantage there. So it's just getting in there and convincing them of these benefits. Where we have, uh, uh, white spots or holes, we use our colleagues to help increase our presence. And, um, it's, it's, it's really, it's exciting to be in cyclones and pumps because even without the capital projects, we can still sell like mad. Also, I mentioned that we provide, pr- um, um, uh higher um, lower energy costs due to higher pumping efficiency right so what that means is we don't we can't, our targets are not just the big parts consuming pumps we can go and replace every little pump the customer can see and take it out because we can show a substantial power savings and of course that's more and more important in this day and age the other thing is when we install the pump They have an amp meter usually on the motor. So they install the pump, put the feed to it. Then they look at the amp meter. It goes down 10%, 15%. Less power. Instant feedback. And so our customers that have experience with a pump replacement where we've successfully replaced it, when a capital project comes along, if that person is involved in the decision-making processes, it gives us a real advantage. So it builds everything, and and this is the perfect time, of course, to be doing it before the next upswing. We also have opportunities where we have very low market shares in some significant, very closely adjacent markets. One of them, oil sands. Um, Most of you probably know that's in Alberta, in the uh, Alberta um, province of Canada, in Fort McMurray. There's five customers. What they do is they take their sand that has the bitumen coating on it, and they put water and then they pump it from the mine, which is mostly just scraping the top, um, and send it to the processing plant. But they do that instead of trucking or conveying belts because they have to condition the slurry before the processing plant can remove the bitumen. So these are huge pumps pumping heavy slurries big solids, so it's a really huge pumping opportunity, and it's a big cost driver for them, the maintenance and the power cost. So that's a key one we're focused on. So in summary, we're a clear number one in uh, cyclones and in the mining industry. We're in a distant number two in slurry pumps, but have a strong strategy to change that. Um, it's an exciting time for us because finally it seems that the capital expenditure budgets have bottomed out and most of you, I think, are projecting maybe slight increases in the coming years. So we don't have the headwinds anymore, so we're replacing pumps and we see, um, we see the future is very bright. So we're going to um, maintain and grow our cyclone market share using the technology I mentioned. We're going to grow our cyclone revenue and in adjacency industries. And we're going to grow our pumps while we wait for the upterm through aggressive targeting of competitor pumps. With the combination of that, we expect to grow 5 to 6% faster than the market over the mining cycle. So Brian, thank you very much.
5: I guess continuing on the theme of growth through key products, I'd like to introduce Francisco. He's been with the company for 22 years and he's going to talk to us today about packaging solutions. Thank you, Brian.
8: Yeah. cement packaging. What does it mean? It means to fill into the bags, cement, and then handle in an optimal way the full bags, dispatching in some way according to the customer requirement. This is our core expertise. This is where we are experting. The FLA Smith Ventomatic, the company that I'm leading, has the headquarter in Bergamo. Bergamo is a small city, a small beautiful city, not far away from Milano, on the way to Venice. In that location, we have our main assembly facility. We have also other business unit, one in India and one in China, where we are sharing the facility with other product company and division, both for the head, of, uh, sorry, for the head office and the assembly centers. F.L. Smith Ventomatic in a nutshell, we are world-leading in packaging cement. We have a strong reputation and a strong name in providing full, integrated, automatic packing and dispatching lines. We are also innovative. Innovation is in our DNA since day one of our history, 60, 60 years ago, on May, last May where we start our journey innovating and presenting to the market advanced product for following the uh, requirement of the customer that are changing continuously. And in the last years, those requirements for having a better productivity are changing more frequently, asking for customized and complex solutions. For giving an idea, our product range is composed of products that we have developed and launched on the market in the last five years. We have also very interesting growth opportunity in Ventomatic. In our core business, because of demand of increasing productivity, we can see opportunity for improving the existing facility, for upgrading them, and also for expanding the the actual uh, facility. Moreover, we can see a great opportunity to grow in a adjacent market. In particular, we have uh, found the three interesting targets. Building material, and when I'm talking about building material, I'm talking about gypsum, lime, dry mix, dry mortar, and calcium carbonate. Then a petrochemical, also another interesting uh, sector, and a fertilizer. Fertilizer, actually... It's not really a digestion market because for mining is one of the core sector. But for Ventomati for us is a completely new market. Why bags is so important? Because bags is a common way to sell cement, not only cement by the way. So for instance, if we look to the the small flow sheet on the upper left corner. We can see that after the grinding, uh, we have the silo, and then two ways to deliver cement, in bulk or through the packing facility. And uh, if we consider, that, for instance, the developing country, the percentage of cement delivering bags can be up to 40, 45%, with some interesting peak, for instance, in India, where it goes up to 60% and over in some regions. The packing plant can be part of the full cement line, so we are completely integrated in the flow sheen of the cement division, but also is present in the grinding station that is a quite interesting trend, especially in the Middle East and in the Far East, and also in the simple distribution center, where there is a simple silo and a packing plant for distributing cement. A cement bag is usually 50 kilo bags, so it's quite heavy, and a single uh, packing line can produce up to uh, 15 millions of bags per year. On the on the left, you can see different examples of uh, 50 kilo bags. Totally different. We have uh, paper bags, we have uh, plastic bags. Uh, some of them with uh, glue valve, some is completely stitch. So. The market requires us to handle all of them, all of them in an efficient way, have the highest capacity possible and the highest accuracy possible. This is the challenge that we have. And sometimes all kind of uh, all types of bags are present in the same plant. So we need also to provide enough flexibility to handle all of them automatically. The trends of the industry, I'm talking about the cement is for increasing safety and productivity. Then we have a great opportunity, as I told you before, regarding the upgrading of existing facility, not only a facility of automatic equipment, but also our competitors as well. This is a nice picture, so at least it's nice for me, maybe because it's salmon packing from the past. But in reality, it's not from the past because this is the normal situation that we can find in the developing country. So it's dangerous, it's uh, hazardous, labor intense. There is a lot of contamination of the cement, a lot of loss of production here. If we consider our design, uh, an installed capacity of uh, 100 tons per hour, in this situation, the normal production, the real production is uh, 50 tons. So we are talking about a productivity that is only 50% of what is uh, the target. So there is a a great room for improvement here, definitely. No mention about the safety because also the safety. We, the situation is quite clear. We have a low productivity and low level of safety. This is our proposal. Starting from the top, this is a, a solution that we have developed and launched in the market a few years ago. This is a completely salmon plant, salmon line, sorry, where we can uh, produce up to. 2,400 bags per hour, or 120 tons per hour, with only one single operator. It's completely pre-assembled, pre-wired, can be shipped in container, and then in a, in a few days can be assembled and put in operation. The interesting thing is that the footprint of this packing plant is basically the same footprint of a three-bedroom apartment. So we are talking about 100 square meter only, maybe less than three-bedroom apartment. And most important is one-third of the footprint of a traditional pecking plant. And it does not require any civil works. So there is a lot of advantage of this kind of solution. And if we look to the second pictures, this is a, how a pecking plant should be. Completely well organized, no dust, no operator, high level of safety. This is the target. The pecking plant usually is composed of different line pecking lines, from 2 to 8, depending on the level of automation the output requires. The value of each pecking line goes from 3 million of DKK up to 11 million of DKK, depending on the level of automation. And another interesting feature is definitely for sure that a full automatic pecking line requires only, let's say, per per shift, two operators against uh, 12 operators minimum for a manual uh, loading uh, pecking line. What does it mean? That if we consider that uh, typically a pecking plan runs for three shifts per day, there is a lot of saving in terms of manpower as well. This is our product lines. Starting from the, from the left, we have the, the packers where we extract the cement from the silos and we bag, uh, we are filling the bags of, uh, with the cement. Capacity can go from 60 to up, up to 250 tons per hour. We have a bag applicator for applying automatically empty bags on this carousel. We have a palletizer that receiving full bags from the packers, and then can organize the full bags in a layer, and then load the layer in a pallet. So this is the final load can goes from a half a ton up to two tons and a half. We have also alternative way of loading sema- uh, loading bags like uh, the loaders for closed type of trucks or container. This is a, an interesting product that we are going to launch on the market, where we are loading automatically containers and a closed drive. If you imagine that uh, loading a container with bags or pallet is uh, nowadays, even in developed country, is a manual operation, where sometimes you involve also the forklift with the operator. It's an extremely dangerous operation, where there is a lot of injuries. So we can provide a solution where, with a much higher capacity than with, an, uh, with the operator, we can load container without any intervention of the human being. Completely automatic. Last uh, product line is uh, the automatic loader for open-top trucks, which is the most common uh, trucks in the cement industries. We can load from the top directly on the platform of the truck full bags, in different type of configuration and different type of capacity. As I told you, Ventomatic is the leading brand in cement packing. But of course, we need to keep innovating for stay, uh, uh, behind our, uh, stay ahead of our competitors. Regarding the, uh, the sales we are selling, in this moment, more outside the group, FLSMIT, directly to the customer, or the end user, or other engineering company, than to the to the FLSMIT. This proportion can vary, depending on the year, the number of the cement plant projects that, uh, that we have, but, in general, we are selling more outside the group. We have a very good relationship with the Chinese Design Institute, where we have, uh, thanks to our strong name and reputation, Usually, we are always in the vendor list. Regarding the core market, we are extremely strong everywhere, of course, but in particular in South America, in North Africa, and the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. Where are the main opportunities to grow? As I told you, productivity in the cement, number one. Improve our geographical uh, uh, coverage in the cement, because there are some several white spots that we can we can cover better, and the adjacent markets. Let's talk about what we can do in the core business, in the core sectors. The market trends and the productivity requirement in the cement are very clear for us. It's uh, increasing demand that is coming from every, every area geographically. It's quite a global requirement. Increase the output of the existing line improve health and safety. This is a main issue for all the big groups, all the big players. Reduce manpower is linked to the previous point, of course. Reduce power consumption. Reduce uh, uh, truck waiting time. And reduce inventory. Having less bags on the warehouse waiting for customers. We can answer to this requirement with our value proposition, which is based on our product range. So we can provide high-capacity and flexibility solution, full automated, innovative logistic solution, as I explained regarding the container loader, service and aftermarket offering. This is one example of how we can answer to the requirement of the customer. This is a new loader. Another one this is for open top truck that we launched at the at the end of the last year and is uh, already a, a very good uh, let's say product for uh, in in our sales already so it's an innovative way of loading uh, full bags on the on the top because it can load all kind of all sides of bags in all sides of configuration for all kind of open top truck and uh is uh, providing to the market the highest capacity possible available on the market, much higher than our competitors. So is uh, the, the most flexible one and the, and the, and as the a capacity is the best one on the market. And uh, most important is, uh, we designed that for being installed easily in the existing facility, for replacing very quickly manual loading or the loaders of the competitor. In fact, the, all the, the sales that we have done so far in this year is for replacing manual loading, model loaders, or uh, loaders of our competitors. So let's move from our core business to the digestion market. We have a, a, um, defined three different targets which consider very significant for us. Building materials, where we have a, a, in the building material, there is a pecking process that is very similar to the cement uh, pecking process, and uh, this is an advantage for us, of course. And uh, the main requirement of the building material is the cleaning, the better accuracy, and flexibility. The size of uh, the addressable market, the size is one third of the cement. Interesting is also the petrochemical, where there, there is a in, Requirement of higher capacity of the actual and actual and available on the market, so they are looking for uh, more advanced suppliers. And of course, it's very interesting here the the trend because we have a, a strong uh, growth in the market. the The disadvantage is the packing process here is very different of what we have in the cement. The uh, the size of the of uh, the petrochemical is the same similar of the cement uh, sector. Then we have the fertilizer that uh, for Ventomatic is a adjacent market, where the size is one uh, 1.5 times the cement size, where the again the picking process is a little bit different, little bit very different of the cement. And there is an increased demand of the customer to having a better solution for how to handle, how to deliver bags to the customers. And this is where we can offer our value proposition. Strong uh, trend of uh, growth, of course. The population is increasing, so also the fertilizer sector will increase as well. Overall, we are talking about an addressable market that is 2.5 times the actual core business of Entomatic. So if we map our capability with the sector, we can have a a good overview about about the the situation in the core business and in the adjacent market. We can see that uh, we are strong in the cement with uh, uh, regarding the pecking, the bag application, the palletizing, the loading, because we have all the solution. We are expert in that. For the building material, we have the solution. We, I can say that for entering the building material is just a matter to be more focused from the sales point of view. Regarding the other two uh, sectors, fertilizer and petrochemical, uh, regarding the, the packing process, we, are, uh, we have to uh, let's say define the solution. We have some some projects in uh, in, uh, in progress, but the most important thing is that our palletizing and loading solution is the right one for this project. For this sector, so we can use our backbone, our, our um, bestseller, for entering this market with a, a proposal, value proposition that the other uh, competitors in this uh, sectors they don't have. This is a recap. Ventomatic, we are a world leader in the cement packaging, but for keeping our leading position, we have to keep innovating. We have to keep to focus on the R&D. And this is our DNA, because we are strong in that. And uh, as I explained, uh, this uh, company has a great opportunity to grow, either in the core market, in the core sector of cement, thanks to this requirement, increased requirement of productivity, where we have the perfect value proposition, and also with uh, addressing the ejection market fertilizer, petrochemical, and building materials. We expect an additional from 3 to 5% growth above the market trend, thanks to this uh, growth opportunity. Thank you. Well thanks a lot.
0: Got... So, uh, that was uh, a little bit about technology, not that much, a few minutes as you saw it we hope that we informed you more than the normal strategic setup and the normal information or standard information what you normally get from us on, uh, on meetings with you one on one and on bigger uh, summits in different big uh, big cities now to the to the closing note growth through productivity that uh, we hope that you see that this is another step in the journey, what we do since several years with our company in our two industries where we act in. It is, I called it, to invite you into our house, the effel Schmidt House, and to look into some of the rooms, what we call growth opportunities. There's more. There's definitely more. And it is important to look, of course, out of the window, too. How is the market outside? But there is quite a lot in the company what we can do on top of the normal market conditions. Yes, we are most probably and most likely at the cyclical or at the end of the downturn in mining or close to it and in cement cautiously optimistic to move now further out. But we should not forget um, at the end of one recession is any time the beginning of a new one. So we have to be prepared. We have to leverage on it, we have to work on it, we have to be prepared. To be prepared to or to prepare a company in the downturn for the upturn, to prepare a company in the upturn for the downturn, that is what we are about. It is a gift to the premium suppliers that we are now entering a productivity cycle. Competence is demanded, value is demanded, not the cheapest steel supplied anywhere in the world. That is important and that is what we work on and it's about the competence of our people and we have a very, very good position because we have a very good competence in the company. Our house is in order. What does it mean? It means that the things we wanted to work on and where we wanted to improve what we have in our own hands, we are on the way or already done and we will not give up to work on that further. But of course, it's an industry with a bumpy road, There are good quarters, there are not-so-good quarters, that's the part of our business. And we try to give as much information into the market as we can and guide, and being very, very, very transparent in that, how we think and what we would like to do. For us to be the productivity provider number one is not only motivating for our people, and unlocking capital into areas where you may be in the downturn, would not put the capital into it, but it positions us as a value provider into the market. And we showed in that presentation some growth levers in it. When we then look into the summary of that what we showed, one thing was productivity and digitalization. Digitalization, yes, there is a little bit business directly and only on the digitalization. But the main thing is to be the enabler of all the premium business and competences what you can sell into the industry. We do it since the beginning of the 60s. And we know that one of our cornerstones in salmon for example, is that we can fully automate and playing Steve, job on the stage. Where is Paya? Yeah, Steve playing and showing you what we can do already in digitalization. That enables us to have a market-leading position in selling equipment, projects, parts, services, the full productivity line. The other part was with Manfred regarding the huge potential of a technology shift based on more complexity, dropping all grades and so on with the ROL as well as looking to take care of an yeah, issue out in the market, out in the mining industry with tailing dams. And, of course, life cycle management. To be with the client, not only since 1902, but to be with the client as a partner and not discussing the cost for a wear liner per kilo, discussing with the customer what makes our wear liners more feasible, reducing more the cash cost for the client than anyone else wants. And then, of course, our product companies. We had two of them. Of course, we have more, as you saw, with what we call coverage run into it. Actually, our wear part run in life cycle is a kind of a coverage run too, where we simply have to go into markets where, where we are already with other products to cover it up and taking our fair share of the, the sale of customers. If we then add that up, then you see on the slide on the left side as a repeat that the structural growth, the market growth over a cycle is 3 to 4% in cement and 4 to 5% in mining. Of course, as we all know, there is a growth path in the cycle where the growth rates are higher, and there's of course a negative growth path when we go into the recession. But that's is the over the cycle calculated and already in 14 communicated market growth rates. On the right side, you see the self-initiated, not supported by the market growth, self-initiated growth levers what we have in F.L. Schmidt, which is on top of it a two to three percent on cement and in mining three to four percent. Not only out of that what we showed today, out of our exposure into the market, And that explains the situation why we say above market growth rates. Of course, with that growth rate, it has a positive EBITDA improvement, of course, over the leverage, cost, and the the scale on the top line, as well as with the purchasing part, what Lars explained. That has, of course, giving us already quite a while ago the confidence to reach more than 20% return on capital employed in a foreseeable future. What does it mean? Here you see a nice uh, active slide starting with quarter one 2008 in the blue sticks. That's the top line and the green um, line on top of it shows actually the EBITDA margin. And the band, the grayish band behind shows the 10 to 13%. So, this is to go into the 10 to 13 percent is nothing new for our company. We have a time with a quite a significant downturn. We use the time to prepare the company for outstanding growth and good position, number one position in the productivity. It gives us, if the market goes as we see it, a structural growth and on top of it, the self-initiated growth, which definitely brings us back into that band and of course brings us back into the 20% and more return on capital employed. So, our long-term targets, annual revenue growth above market average. That is what we have. A big part of the growth will be self-initiated by simply using that competence, that market appearance, that market position all over where we act, and into new technologies based on going into a productivity cycle. The EBITDA margin, we believe we are on track. Return on capital employed will come when the top line comes. That's a pure mathematical thing. Based on the the assets what we carry with us, it is necessary to have over 20 billion DKK business. Related with that, uh, of course, how the profitability is. Our equity ratio, our financial gearing and payout ratio it's all on track so from that point of view yes we send here a more positive news because it's growth and still with a big part of the business in the downturn it will not cover up what what we said for 17 for example regarding the headwind what we have pricing and cement and so on but it clearly shows we are geared up we are able we are capable to take quite significant growth in quite in a short, in relatively short time. You will see from us uh, a huge leverage on the cost base based on growth. You will see from us more global coverage. You will see from us more going into adjacent industries. You will see from us covering things like where parts where we have to be in. You will see from us that we are leading into digitalization. And of course, you you will see from us further, more innovation, landmark innovation for the industry to give our customers, our clients the possibility to earn more money at the end of the day. With that, I would like to say thank you and asking the presenting team here to the stage for the open Q&A with you. you have uh, the microphone,
7: <laughs>
0: so please, he was first. You, you are first. Oh, Ah, microphone. Yeah. Yeah, here. I thought
6: it was. sorry.
0: Sorry, he was first. <laughs>
9: Thank you. This is uh, Christian Johansen from Danske Bank. Um, Thomas, you started showing sort of an illustration of the difference between a capacity cycle and a productivity cycle, um, with a productivity cycle having more business in services and uh, pro- products and, and less in in projects. So, looking at your margin levels, the mix effect should be positive. Uh, f- from from uh, from that perspective. My first question is then the 10 to 13% as you just showed is what you were able to do in the last capacity cycle, but doesn't it seem a a bit uh, cautious given the, the help you can get from Mix?
0: I think it's very important to understand a productivity cycle needs significant more investment into competence development and into innovation, and that costs a lot of money. And that, of course, is calculated in. It is important that we are enabling, as a management team, the company to have a very good future. And that is, of course, calculated into that too, besides other things that we would like to go more abroad than we already are.
9: So, so maybe just a follow-up. so How, how far do you do you think you are in this transition of, of being able to provide the full sort of uh, product offering for a productivity site?
0: Yeah, in cement, I think we are quite far in it, too. In mining, we have some gaps where we work on. We saw it with the RL, for example, or dry stack tailings. So that's the, that's the thing. I can't say that how far we are, really, because we will never end. It's a changing end market with changing demands and requirements. So we have to be always on our toes to be a step ahead of that what is actually demanded.
9: And then secondly, so the other angle to to this sort of mixed question is on the networking capital because obviously you have high networking capital in, in products and in, in services. So will that impact your ability to reach the
0: 20%? No, I think um, you can take it.
1: Um, I think what we will, when you look at the capital employed, working capital is, uh, is around, uh, yeah, Around uh, uh, how much is it? It's uh, two. 10 to, uh, two, uh, two billion. We have, um, and even if we have a, a cycle where we really get lots of projects, uh, we will get prepayments. It will go down a little bit, but it will move the capital employed very little. <clears throat> if we do a really good job, it's taking the the, uh, the the working capital down by half a billion, a billion, or something like that. So it doesn't really move the needle. Uh, it will generate good cash flow when it happens, but uh, that will not be what's going to drive the 20%.
9: Okay, thank you.
1: And last.
10: Thanks. Last toppan from uh, Carnegie. Just a couple of questions. Uh, in this productivity cycle, where you explain you have uh, technologies other people do not possess, uh, you are invited increasingly into to optimize a whole plant rather than just give a quote for. Uh, maybe a crusher or grinder. Can can you talk a little bit about the selling process? Is it going to be less tenders or uh, what's the competitive landscape going to look like? Are you increasingly able to make value-based pricing in this productivity cycle? What does that uh, say about margins? And and then, Brian, you you mentioned the, the wear part opportunity. Maybe... Can you talk a little bit about who are you going to steal that where part market share from? Thank you.
4: Yeah, uh, maybe answer the part about the, the way how we sell. It is very clear now that we get invited based on our process, uh, know-how and so on, to go out and do audits. And uh, the audits, what we do is different uh, levels of audits, but we come back with recommendations where we believe we can de-bottleneck or optimize the process and so on. So we have the the process know-how, we have the people, we have the lab, and we also have the product know-how that we can really go out and do a very in-depth analysis. And based on that recommendation, we then sit down together with the customer and find these opportunities where they have the quickest return. So it's very much where we add value it's not about how much steel or how many dollars per ton for this type of equipment is how much value do you add how quickly can you can you do this so it's a very different selling process but through our reputation in the industry and through our aftermarket contacts we have the right channels how we can go in how we can analyze this and have the trust by our customers that we will make the right recommendations so it's shifting a little bit the the way how we sell, but based on that we have all the necessary competences in the organization, that, again, gives us a very good opportunity to be the respected uh, company that is invited for these opportunities.
10: But is the customer then going to make a tender, including all your competitors, based on your audit input?
4: No, I mean, uh, because what we normally do is that of course, when we make a recommendation, we also give some kind of guarantee how much the improvement will be. So it's not uh, that anybody can say, okay, you put in this equipment because the interface with the whole process is important. So we say, based on the whole process analysis, if you change this piece in the bottle, that will improve your whole capacity. So it's not about just getting the... The cheapest equipment in. It's about how you optimize the whole process. And if we can guarantee that, then it's not a discussion about what is the price for the piece of equipment. It's how much will it improve the overall productivity of my plant. And so we see very little. Once you have the trust, when you once you have that type of dialogue with the customer, then the customer switches around and say, Yeah, thanks for your recommendation, but I now go out buy it from the cheapest. That's very seldom happens.
10: So, so does that also imply a stickier customer relationship once you are in based on uh, an
4: audit? Yeah, I wouldn't call it sticky. It's a, it's a more healthy relationship because that's the, that's the pace uh, the of all our interface now that we say, look, we have a lot of knowledge. We know hundreds of copper mines all over the world. We can compare your mine, your operation, with the standard in the industry, and based on our knowledge, we can give you the right recommendation. So if you come to us... You access a global knowledge base, and this is what we are providing. And for that, of course, that partnership, uh, we expect some return, uh, return, and normally the customers are expecting this relationship. And I hand it over now to Brian regarding the rare parts.
5: Yeah, thank you, Lars, for the the question. Um, if I understood it, I'll, I'll try to give it an answer and let me know if I didn't answer it, but from a Standpoint of where we're going with liners, I guess I don't view it as a, as a steel play. There's a couple dynamics going on in the marketplace. One is on the boutique, smaller liner companies that we talked about earlier in the day a bit, um, our customers are looking at their supply chain and they're going, ah, we've got 10,000 suppliers. How do we get the supply chain down to where we're dealing with fewer suppliers? So we play heavily into that play with the big miners. And they'll ask us, what's your scope of supply today? What can you bundle? What can you bring to the party? That's one dynamic. The other part of that one was that value-added thing where now, with the bundling effect, the customers are starting to want to buy liners for us where they used to bypass. So that's a, a dynamic where now we're playing with them at a local, smaller level for two dynamics or two drivers. On the big foundries, the big players, they're coming to us saying, hey, you've got a footprint that we don't have. We've got our five, six foundries strategically located, or 20, but we don't have that footprint in Africa, in Indonesia. You've got local setups there. Can we work with you to expand our scope and our in our breadth of supply? So for them, I think they're seeing it as a play where we'll split a little bit on what we do today, but there's a huge growth potential in volume going forward, and that's uh, two different dynamics, but uh, very much in play right now. Thanks. Did, I, did that answer it? Or, yeah.
0: Next question, please. All clear, guys. Yeah.
11: I have a few questions. Uh, the first one's relating to the O&M activity that uh, talked about. Uh, you mentioned 10 production lines in five locations. What's the sort of blue sky opportunity there? Um, how does it get proved out? And what are the economics of, of, of driving that business more?
3: Yes, that's true. Those are the, the figures mentioned. And these are the plants that we are operating. And as I showed, the, the online access we have to these. O&M is a relatively young business for us. Um, We have learned a lot over those years. You also know that we have had challenges in certain locations, very much related to these were countries enjoying very much the booming oil prices. And then when that changed, markets also became affected. And that has then, to some extent, hit us as well. We've been spending the time on both learning and revising our business model. And I think like it goes for the rest of the business, now, we are very well positioned to go into a growth phase. And that growth phase will come in several different ways. First of all, we have a much more global focus now, where we before focused more on certain specific locations, which we'll also see in where we operate the plants. But it's also the business model and the approach to the customers and to the way we go into the partnerships with the customers. So it may still be that in some areas, we go in with a full OM and partnership model, where we basically take over Everything in the plant, operation, maintenance, blue-collar workers, etc. But increasingly, we will go into also models where we focus more on the high-value-added part of the business, which is exactly what we've been talking about today. So that may be remote, online support and help to our customers through these digitalization tools that I already showed. It could be models where we go in and we have, let's say, management, key specialists at site, what the operations through the workers and uh, other the specialists there will still be done by the client. So our offering going forward will be much more differentiated and I think this is where we are now in a very strong position to leverage on the growth that we do see ahead of us coming out of the downturn slightly as Thomas alluded to and we expect that also to be seen in our O&M business. So we are more global in our approach now and we are much more varied in our business model. And we work on quite a big number of very interesting opportunities where we much more leverage and go after the high value added part of the, the value chain in that. So from that perspective, we are actually quite optimistic in our own business on the coming years.
11: Can I just ask you, just on the, um, the drivers of this, and both industry drivers as well as your own focus drivers, um, what does it take for more of this stuff to happen? Um you know what would be a leading indicator in your mind that you know this is now um gone over the sort of the the transom in terms of acceptability at the customer level as well as the change in business model? Because it suggests also that you should have a much stickier um revenue structure over time.
3: Well I think our our different approach now where we go in and understand the customer needs much better than we probably did when we entered into this young business will enable us to focus both on the right customers, the right market segments and then go in with our high value added offerings. And these are exactly the ones that I showed today where we go in and we demonstrate that we can go in and improve performance significantly in terms of output, in terms of stability, in terms of reduced energy input to the plants. And it does not mean that we need to take over the whole operation of the plant. That will be the case in some cases, but many, many more cases maybe that will not be the case. And in an industry where it has not been the tradition to have O&M services, that is a business model which we think will gain much more tra- traction than necessarily having to go in and take over the full operation of the plants. So in that sense, I think you will see different types of partnerships and you, in terms of numbers, see uh, more than you have seen in the past, but probably at a different level and in a different type of, of business mix.
11: Uh, my next question is about pumps. and. Um uh, the question of what drives pump replacement, especially that of your competitors, and so what can you do to accelerate that, given that you're the challenger in that market?
7: Yeah, so it's uh, it's always about first with a problem. So maybe it's a wear problem, maybe it's a power issue, um, and the customers may not know they have a problem. So that's the selling process is to show them that that yeah, this is wearing out faster than it should. So that's what drives it is solving. A problem and, and reducing their costs um, with the selling process really focused on 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 bringing that problem to their full attention. Um, and the second part of the question, well,
11: just, I just want to know what 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 drives the
7: oh, okay. Uh, so why why can't it go faster? It's sticky, you know. Like you mentioned, um, you know, they're reluctant to change. There's some engineering involved with the changes. So some, some work needs to be done. So that slows it down. Um, uh, certainly nobody wants to get fired because they put in a, a pump. So there has to be a lot of trust. So all of this takes an ex- intensive selling effort. And that's what slows it down.
11: I mean, if you're already present with a cyclone, does it make it easier to sell the pump? Oh, well?
7: absolutely, yeah, 100%. So
11: yeah. presumably since your share of cyclones is much higher, that should get you some traction there? Yeah,
7: or? yeah I mean, we wouldn't really be the player we are today if we hadn't started with the Cyclones. So it's really the advantage that we have. Okay. Thank you.
11: Yeah, uh, Peter, Thomas, um, what in your view um, would have to change in the market in cement? for prices and the outlook for that to, to improve? What do you think needs to change? And then also, just secondly, I wanted to understand what's your view on your relationship with Sonoma now? How has that changed definitely over the last you know three to four years? In uh, this-
0: let me start with the with the easier part, with the relationship with the company Sinoma. We have a very good relationship with the colleagues from Sinoma. We have actually a good relationship with all the peers in the market, to be honest, and it's business what we do. And um, Sinoma, as a very valid player in the world, is uh, actually a company which is in contact with us for a lot of products what we offer in the world. And we do quite a lot of work together, so that's not a fierce competition on, on that point. And uh, the company Sinoma, with all the competences, has a very clear market segment coverage, and we have a very clear market segment coverage. And the overlap is not so dramatic, to be honest. Um, Then, if it comes to the pricing part, in the premium segment, as we call it, in the productivity-driven premium segment, um, of course, uh, if you would have if more scale, if more orders is out available, that lowers the pressure on all the players in the market to go for any price to get a deal and workload in. The recession is very long. We should not forget, in cement. actually, the recession started end of 2008 but you don't see it so much in the figures of the cement suppliers because we had the long lasting projects and actually we showed very good profitability when we moved into the recession because we could buy cheaper than we believed before the financial crisis. And that gave us an additional profitability so it lengthened that boom into the supplier industry but the cement industry now comes out of it and it's a GDP thing too. So out of that, the mix out in the market the available orders have to increase to lower that pricing pressure.
11: Thank you.
9: Christian from Danske with a, uh, a follow up here. So, last in your presentation, you mentioned the uh, uh, the amber room to, to grow, to, to see operating leverage and you have a lot of spare capacity. Can, can you be a, a bit more specific? Um Thomas, you showed the, the simplified calculation of how to get into, to the 20% return on capital. Um is, I mean, that, that 23 to, to 30% revenue range, would you be able to, to grow to, to that without having to increase fixed costs substantially
1: or? Uh, <coughs> So when uh, when you talk about the operating leverage, of course, I'm talking about the SG&A cost, where we have operating leverage, um, and then the other part of the puzzle is of course, what business mix do you have? Um, if we come back uh, very quickly in in cement and uh, and minerals, uh, we will of course need more revenue to get there. Um, so um, so when you ask. Can we get to 23, uh, 25 billion without adding more SG&A costs? No, that's not possible. Uh, We will have to add more uh, salespeople, more proposal people in the the capital divisions and probably more um, salespeople in in the service division too. Uh, But it will not be in proportion to to the revenue. So we'll add less cost as a percentage than we have in our our current base. I think that's the, the answer to that question. We will, of course, also have a little bit of operating leverage in, uh, in our gross margin where um, we can fill up the workshops in Ventumatic uh, more, and that will, of course, uh, give us another level of uh, operating leverage. So, uh, so you'll see different uh, dynamics on that.
9: Uh, thank you. Then just for, for Pierre on the digitalization, I'm just curious how you price these sort of offerings and solutions.
3: As Somersi says, we see to a very large extent um, digitalization as an enabler and include that with our other offerings and products in order to have a leading edge in, in that part of it. And needless to say, this is an area where you can and you should uh, demand higher margins when you have these digitalized productivity-enhancing features in your products. So the more we can get away from we, what we call the commoditized offerings and into the high-value Added offerings, which are definitely the ones that includes exactly the level of digitalization that I was talking about. That will also drive that shift towards uh, higher margin uh, added offerings. So that's definitely something we are very much um, aware of us. And of course our automation unit, they also go out on their own offerings and uh, they have pricing models accordingly.
9: And, and how much of the market today is commoditized in that sense? How far are you in sort of reaching that goal?
3: I think it's very difficult to say exactly how much is commoditized. As Thomas, he said, we have a premium segment we work in, and then there's another part of the whole market, uh, which is uh, the non-premium or mid-market segment. And uh, in the premium segment, without being able to say so much is commoditized, we work on decommoditizing as much as we can. And there are definitely, in cement, when you look at a complete cement plant, there are parts of it, not the key technologies, not the key equipment, other parts where we simply said, this is not the key technology of us, this is not where we have our focus, that part of it we outsource, but all the key components where we can come in and we can, on top of it, add these digitalization initiatives that we have here, this is the focus that, uh, that you will see going forward. So we are working very much as we can to decommoditize the markets we play in and the offerings we come out with. That, that's necessary to also drive the Martin agenda as we talked about before.
9: Excellent. Thank you. Maybe
0: we could, we could add one thing. There was, uh, on the Capital Market Day 2014, we decided not to go into mid-market from the, from the cement part because we were re- actually over the wave that the customers require the cheapest possible commoditized plant offered. What we see today is there's one customer group asking for a very fast return on investment with Western Key equipment, where our product companies are very successful in it, and a big part of the market being really on value creation of a salmon plant where they get a good cash cost over the whole lifetime of the plant. And money is relatively cheap, so they really look into what is the total cost over the lifetime of the plant and what can we get, uh, guarantee and calculate. There's a question.
12: Hi, Markus am Marcus Almer, kepler uh, On the mining side, we know that most mines with current metal prices are cash positive, and there is some increase in OPEX budgets. So, so we are seeing a little bit more money around, which is seems to be mainly spent on the upstream parts. We see very strong growth rates, whereas you guys in your piece are seeing flattish rates. So will you see part of that replacement cycle, or will we have to wait for the significant top-line growth until the CapEx cycle starts? Yeah. You think in 1920, but whenever it will be.
0: Yeah. The, uh, I could enjoy in my life both sides of the area of that business. In fact, is um, the bigger part of the cost on the mine side is on the mine side versus the processing plant. That's the first part where customers look into. Mobile equipment, when you change, when you make replacement, you make normally fleet replacement. That gives immediately to the suppliers who are early cyclical, like Sandvik, for example, or Atlas Copco, quite a good growth rate directly when you come out of, the, out of the recession. Stationary equipment is, in the growth rates, always slower. It takes more confidence, it takes more yeah, more calculation, more knowledge, more productivity knowledge, more knowledge in process to calculate which unit to take out and to replace and which impact it has. So the recovery rate in that part is always slower. It starts with a few percentage and then it gets speed over the time. So there is actually more a difference between mobile equipment and stationary equipment than any anything else. Because mobile equipment, you can drive in, doesn't work, drive out, next. That's a completely different thing. So to make a nutshell, early cyclical mobile, faster recovery, very quick back on, on relatively good rates, and stationary takes a little bit longer time. The advantage is, When it goes again into a recession, of course, the late cyclical as we are, we are hanging more positively into the recession. It hits us later. And then I'm I'm just curious about, to talk a little bit about
12: the falling head grades in the mine, because we know that they have been falling for a while now. And that should, I mean, a lot of what you do is tied to the throughput in the mine. So, so. How much of this has, over time, historically been offset by better productivity? And, and are the plan? I mean, is it possible to offset the continuous decline? Because the numbers are pretty big uh, in the amounts of ore you have to put through the system to be able to get to the same type of, of material or, or metals. So, can you offset part of that, or will it be a one-to-one relationship to the spares and wares, and etc., and equipment that you have to?
0: have to invest in. We do that already. We do that already. We do that for clients to take over complete sites to improve cash cost. What happened is in when I started to study and Manfred already was working for ten years or so, we (laughs) we we were able to increase productivity per annum, for example in the nineties by three percent in the mining industry. In the 2000s, when we came into the capacity cycle, in average, it deteriorated 8 to 9 percent per annum, the productivity. In one commodity, which is very golden, it was actually a productivity deterioration up to 12, 13 percent per annum. That combined, that situation, that combined with lower ore grades is quite a selling point. And we are not the only one identifying that, in that case. And when we look into ROL, dry stack tailings, no matter what it is, of course, any way it addresses that more complex situation. And finally, what I can say, as more complex the situation is, as more complex the chemistry of the geology is, as more difficult it is, as better for Eiffel-Schmidt.
5: from Nordea. One question regarding cost inflation. So, so, how much cost inflation do you see, and uh, what's your ability to pass it on to your customers? Customer, I didn't understand. Cost, cost, cost inflation.
4: inflation. Would you like to take that? I can um, answer that. Uh, we are uh, increasingly being approached now by customers that want to lock in the prices. They see an inflation coming, especially with increasing. Uh, materials prices and so on, and they want to take advantage of the current very competitive situation and have supply agreements that will ensure them that uh, once the demand is increasing and the inflation is increasing that the costs are not going up too much. So I think at the moment uh, we have a, a very competitive Supply chain and we can take advantage for it, but everybody expects, uh, everybody expects this to come up. So we make agreements with our supply, suppliers to lock in prices as much as we can, and we see the same trends uh, from our customers that go into their studies with prices which they want to secure and make agreements to us. So uh, everybody's aware about the situation when what we had in the boom when the prices completely went out of uh, control, and they are trying to introduce mechanisms now that um, uh, avoid that. And we have uh, quite many contracts where some steel lead price increases, copper price increases are as an index in the price so that we can adjust the price if, this, if we see any major changes there. So it's a, a more open, more transparent situation what uh, the inflation how this will impact our pricing. So just to be sure so you are more or less fully hedged uh, hedge uh, through the value chain more or less. More or less. I mean, fully hedged. There's always, you know, you never hatch 100%. But sure. uh, yes, of course. I mean, uh, we get the requests from um, from our uh, customers. As we mentioned, we have 70 or 80% uh, outsourced. So we go to our suppliers and try to hatch. Of course, whatever commitment we make to the customers, we hatch with our suppliers. Okay. And then a
9: question to Pat around uh, around the Krebs being, you know, a small agile company in the big FLS uh, family. Uh, at least this is what what we are being told.
5: Is that also the, the truth that you can stay uh, you know on your own and keep
9: your innovation and, and agility?
7: Uh, yeah, I mean we 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 can work very fast, but I think that's true of all of FL Schmidt. I don't. It's not just it's us. When we um when we go up the chain for whatever reason, it comes back very quickly. We've never had an issue with. Uh, Long decision making or anything like that. Um, what makes us fast is because we're close to the customer, and um, and of course we we. It's true for all of FL Schmidt. We push the decision making down to our people talking to the customer, right? They have a great deal of latitude, not unlimited, but a great deal of latitude to to, to make the deals with the customers, and that's what leads to fast decision making. But that's not unique, I, I don't think, to 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 our to our product. No,
0: the, you
7: know that we built up
0: the product company division, which is absolutely unique in the industry. And the reason for that is that we simply said in the management we don't want to integrate as you normally integrate product companies into global organization. We put them together into one division, all these entrepreneurial, fast-acting, highly innovative entrepreneurship groups, what we then call Ventomatic, Grabs, no matter what, and they tell us in the group which kind of synergy they would like to have with us. We we are more an enabler than really pushing here global agenda. Otherwise, you get in companies more uh, global positions and global managers than you have at the end salespeople in the group, and we don't want to have that. We are a home for competence. Our advantage is to have all the competence, and our task is to combine it and there is no need to kill entrepreneurship. Okay, thanks. Maybe until the next hand comes up a little bit, something to the service from an outlook point of view. The, uh, uh, yes, we, t- we didn't talk so much on that Capital Market Day about the short-term 2017 thing and beginning 18. That is what we do on the quarterly announcement quite a lot. We talk more about, well, let us say, half the cycle, over the cycle, but where is the whole industry going? What is it? it's, we are now into a productivity cycle, maybe in two, which would mean 20 years, where is the industry going? And we see that the service thing, the service issue, and service is not technical service, how to collaborate, how to work with a client, how to take over tasks based on higher competence and capacity, that this gets more and more an issue, and I can take here in Denmark uh, two areas, two companies as an example, ISS and Falk. When you, maybe you observed when you are here in Copenhagen, the fire brigade is not uh, the Copenhagen fire brigade any longer, it's Falk. They took over a service business. ISS is a huge company making facility management. So now we look into our industry, no matter that we think that the salmon plant and the mine site are the most beautiful areas to make long-term vacation, would you agree? That, But we are a little bit alone with that opinion, which we really struggle to understand. But let us, let's assume we understand that. It is always that these sites are out of the big infrastructure. They are in the jungle, five, six hours to drive or to fly in on the mine sites. Cement is never in the center of New York. It's anywhere else around. You have to get people and competences there. And we believe over the decades, over the lifetime, over the the time what we see in front of us, an outsourcing service model, a kind of on top of the O&M will come where customers will say, why should I operate my cement plants? I'm interested to sell the cement and make the profit out of it. So I can give that as, as a service, as you see it with facility management or Um, fire brigade, ambulance, partly now the immigration here in Copenhagen, where I saw a few weeks ago that Falk was controlling my passport, and thanks God approved. So from that point of view, we have to think beyond that, and that gives that whole productivity cycle, service, partnership, focusing on the core, a completely different dimension for the future. And that will, when it comes, not coming over one or two years, you have to be prepared for that. Any further question? There's one.
6: Yes, Thomas, it's fast uh, element from SCB. Um, you've clearly demonstrated today that you have a very exciting product pipeline. Uh, my question is, how does this, or how will this really interplay with your R&D costs the coming years when you're, when you will hopefully be commercializing some of those technologies.
0: Mm-hmm. The, uh, we got the question uh, before, um, when, when you make the math, why are you not higher than 13% EBITDA? We will have increasing innovation costs. And innovation is more than only what what is what we understand with R and D. Value engineering, what we have in the corrective actions program, which is in the engineering part, is innovation too. To take existing equipment, redesign it, more safe, more efficient, and so on. And the the whole innovation cost will definitely, as a percentage or as a total cost, increase over the time because more more how to say sophisticated technologies are required but we do that for quite a while to be honest we do quite a lot for quite a while so we think we have quite a good grip on that what we can do then the second thing is with the reporting and really judging what is r d what is not I take an example actually out of 2013 out of ventomatic when i visited bergamo the first time and I came in, and we were sitting in the meeting room, Francesco and myself, with the new CEO and telling me what he's doing. That mobile phone was ringing. He picked up, and then he said, he talked with a client and said, yep, yeah. uh, no, no, it's done. No, 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 yeah, we, we got it two months ago. The equipment is ready. We, we are actually on the way to deliver. And I asked what it was. It was a problem with a customer where went to Matic within weeks, redesigned an equipment actually as a new equipment. For me, it was a new equipment and already selling to a customer. And that is reported under sales. And that is innovative, uh, frontline-driven, customer-driven, innovation-driven development with a very short time to market. That is entrepreneurship. And when you then put on top of it, to make it more complex, the digitalization and switching it into the digitalized plant, what you can uh, uh, get more out of that, what you offer, that is, of course, very exciting, not only for us as a supplier, for the customers too. So, further questions? No? Then I would like to invite you all for a kind of table meeting, speed dating someone said. Not so sure if that is the right wording. Um, And I promise you there is no need to to carry the jacket any longer because it's warm here too, isn't it? Good. Thanks a lot. Thank you for the participation. Thank you for, yeah, actually all the trust to come here to ask the question and working with us so close, not only today, actually for quite a while. So thanks a lot for that.